This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Policy Genius, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon.com. And we're back. Hey, folks. Tonight, we've got some good news and some bad news. Which one are you supposed to do first with that? You know, I honestly don't know. It's like the great debate over how the toilet paper roll should go. <laughs> That's not a debate. I know exactly how that should go. It should go over the top. Uh, wait, well, uh, wait, how do you do it? I, you know what? I actually don't care. That's just too lazy to pick I don't a side. Even, I don't even put it on the roll. I like to have, be able to pick it up. <laughs> it's just, you walk in with it and walk out. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least no one else is touching it. All right, well, let's do the bad news first. Uh, I'll let you do that. Okay, well, here we go. After tonight's show, folks, we're going to be dark for two weeks, which I got to say, it's actually good news for us. <laughs> we <laughs> well, love you, but yeah, we, we yeah. need to, it's time for a break a little bit. Well, that's true. And, and we're so sorry, but actually it couldn't be helped. It's a confluence of events, really, including Podcast Movement 2017, which we're not only attending, but speaking on some panels at, followed by a brief loss of access to our amazingly talented editor, Sarah, who will be on her honeymoon. Oh, and now for the good news. Oh, hold on a second. That makes it sound like Sarah going on a honeymoon is the bad news. <laughs> well, well, it is for us. Not for uh, her so much. Uh, yes, it, that's true. It, fortunately, we've met her fiance and mm -hmm. we fully approve. He, oh, absolutely. Yeah. He has an El Camino after all. <laughs> uh, With the astroturf <laughs> in the back, yeah. <laughs> but the good news for you guys, our listeners, is that we've heard your calls, received your emails, read your tweets, and collected the rocks thrown through our windows that all had one message on them. And that message was... Bring Richard Haddam back, please. Yeah. One might almost get the impression that you guys really like him better than us, <laughs> which is fine. We're okay with that, really. Oh, yeah. uh, his ego is very fragile, please. Look, don't take it too hard. After all, who, who else can we call in here to talk about the recent spate of Mothman sightings in Chicago? You mean the Chicago Mothman flap of 2017? <laughs> yes, it's the one and the same. You're right, Forrest. Rich is the man for that gig. So after the next two dark weeks, we've got a super fun, atypical show coming down the pike on September 8th as our good friend Rich Haddam returns. He's not only an expert on all things mysterious, he's the screenwriter of The Mothman Prophecies, as well as a plethora of many other impressive creepy projects. Ooh, do I smell a Mothman 2 sequel in the works here? Uh, Mothman Chicago. Yeah, the Chicago <laughs> way. Rich will be back in the astonishing studio for a topical show where we're just going to shoot the breeze about a couple of things, not the least of which will be the current Mothman flap unfolding its wings in Chicago right now. I like how we work that in there. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, if there's something else creepy going on in the world right now that you'd like to hear us talk about on September 8th, or you have questions for Rich, send them to astonishingcontact at gmail.com as soon as you can, and maybe you'll hear your idea or question on the show. All right, let's get back to Kentucky. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. In and around the whole area, the house, the fields, that night, there was a weird feeling. It was partly uneasiness, but not entirely. Everyone had it. There were men there that I'd call brave, men I've been in dangerous situations with. They felt it too. They've told me so. Hopkinsville Police Chief Russell Greenwell. Join us tonight for the final part in our series on the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Okay, so last week in part two, we talked about Pokemon 
and how the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins inspired the creation of Sableye. Right, now hold on, because we have to talk about this a little bit. Yeah, in another apophenic coincidence of <laughs> epic proportions. <laughs> of apoph- apophenic proportions. Apophenic proportions. Yeah. You know, maybe we should explain apophenia a little bit. Yeah, well, apparently some reviewers said I had it bad. So <laughs> we talked about this before. <laughs> well, apophenia 6. She yeah. She was a part uh, yeah, of Prince. Yeah. Prince. Yeah. Apophenia is the counterpoint to the idea that everything is connected. So it right. basically says that you're looking for things to be connected which we obviously are, and we do it all the time, and it's we're a, doing it a lot with this <laughs> particular series. It's connected somewhat to paranoid schizophrenia in that there's some grand design that's all these... You know what it is, folks? It's like when you see the person trying to figure out the massive conspiracy crime, and it's a whole skein of red yarn going all over the room with photos and push pins. Yeah. That's it. It's all connected somehow. I just have to figure out the pattern, yeah. and I'll solve this. Yeah. The orgy of evidence. Yeah. The orgy of evidence, which never exists, apparently, in real crimes. Well, not according to uh, Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Yes. Yeah. So that's what apophenia is. And so in another apophenic coincidence, that may or may not be just a coincidence, and we're going to list all of the seemingly Hopkinsville-connected ones at the end of the show here, but here's yet another thing aligning the 62nd anniversary of the Kelly-Hopkinsville encounter. Today, meaning tonight, pretty close to the time we're releasing this show— The Pokemon World Championships are starting right here in Southern California in Anaheim. They are from August 18th to the 20th. And oddly, we ourselves are going to be in Anaheim just three days later for Podcast Movement. And uh, that's an apophenic coincidence if I ever saw one. But the the point is, (laughs) Sableye is going to be seeing some serious action this weekend just on the eve of the 62nd anniversary of the appearance of his original inspiration. And I think I have to agree with a lot of our commenters that possibly the best aspect of Sableye is trickster mode. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, wow, I like to throw that one at you. That's just, it doesn't, it's not causing a lot of damage, but man, is it annoying. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so where were we? Oh, right, the recap. So last week in part two, we talked about Pokemon, and specifically Sableye being one of the few Pokemon inspired by American folklore. We also talked about the investigation into the case, and we went over what we felt was some of the most reliable information, which was gathered by folks who visited the family the very next morning, including WHOP radio station engineer and amateur sketch artist Bud Ledwith. Additionally, we went over how he got his description of what was seen from the ladies of the house while the men were gone the next day, and then when they returned, they agreed more or less on the sketches he had drawn with the ladies. And we discussed how attentive Bud was to the family and their behavior as they relayed the story. So the next question is, what's happening tonight? For this show, we're going to tackle a couple of the more salient points about how the legend of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter has been treated by history. The first thing we want to talk about is how it's been held up as an example of pseudoscience in action. We did some digging on that, and we have a fair amount to say about it. After that, we're going to discuss a few of the finer points on the investigation that we've not covered yet. And then we're going to talk a little bit about owls, monkeys, booze, the pending eclipse, the sleeping prophet Edgar Cayce's connection to Hopkinsville, and our final conclusions. But first, let me just read this section from the Wikipedia page about pseudoscience and the connection to the Kelly-Hopkinsville encounter. Mm -hmm. Psychologists Rodney Schmaltz and Scott Lilienfeld cite the alleged incident as an example of pseudoscience and an extraordinary claim to help students develop critical thinking skills. Quoting from the paper that we're about to take a look at, 
The Hopkinsville entities have a decidedly earthly explanation. The aliens, in quotes, were, in fact, great horned owls, and the eyewitnesses were probably intoxicated during the alien attack. Rodney Schmaltz and Scott Lilienfeld, Frontiers in Psychology, 2014. And when you look at this, that is cited to a source, and the source is the Rodney Schmaltz, Scott Lilienfeld paper, Hauntings, Homeopathy, and the Hopkinsville Goblins, Using Pseudoscience to Teach Scientific Thinking, which appears in the journal Frontiers in Psychology. And we decided that we were going to take a look at that paper. Forrest? Okay, so backing up here, the first thing you should understand is that this article is often cited as a conclusive argument against not only general pseudoscientific claims— and what students of science should be looking out for when they're doing their research. But it's also for paranormal subjects and, as I said, strange phenomena in general. And they cite several examples with things like the law of attraction and quantum physics. We were just talking about the secret with some of the people of the arc here. That's what they're talking about, the law of attraction. Psychics and spoon bending. And, of course, now we get to Kelly Hopkinsville and aliens and goblins. So basically, their approach is that mystery solved. We figure this out. Here's what you should look out for. We think it tries to. But after the introduction of the ideas and the application of their points, most of which, we th- again, we think are valid points, we're going to tell you why we think that their analysis on the KH encounter doesn't quite hit the mark. So I'm going to read here their introduction to their paper and why they're presenting it. Now, this is from the journal article, again, that appears in Frontiers in Psychology. Hauntings, Homeopathy, and the Hopkinsville Goblins Using Pseudoscience to Teach Scientific Thinking by Rodney Schmaltz and Scott O. Lilienfeld, as printed in Frontiers in Psychology. Right. This is the overview of their article and the reasoning why. So I'm going to read directly from this. With access to information ever-increasing, it is essential that students acquire the skills to distinguish fact from fiction. By incorporating examples of pseudoscience into lectures, instructors can provide students with the tools needed to understand the difference between scientific and pseudoscientific or paranormal claims. We discuss examples involving psychics, ghosts, aliens, and other phenomena in relation to scientific thinking. In light of research literature demonstrating that presenting and dispelling scientific misconceptions in the classroom is an effective means of countering non-scientific or pseudoscientific beliefs. We provide examples of pseudoscience that can be used to help students acquire healthy skepticism while avoiding cynicism. The purpose of this article is to provide examples that challenge students and provide instructors with tools to enhance scientific thinking. To do so, we describe how to distinguish science from pseudoscience and provide several examples that can be used to promote scientific thinking. Specifically, we want to encourage students to employ scientific skepticism. Scientific skepticism means approaching claims with an open mind and a willingness to accept only those claims that have survived scrutiny in rigorous scientific tests. Now, I believe it says just Sagan here. It's 1995. That's uh, the citation. I believe it's Carl Sagan. Right? Yeah, from their list of footnotes, that's from Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. There you go. Random House. We love Carl Sagan. Yes. Okay. Here's the last line of the opening. I like this. This is kind of important. Skepticism differs from cynicism, which implies close-mindedness to novel claims. Through unique class demonstrations, assignments, and lecture material, instructors can use pseudoscience as a vehicle to engage students and foster scientific skepticism. On all sides, I believe. But that's what they're saying is that uh, try not to have a closed mind here because until it passes scientific muster, 
you have to take this gingerly. Don't dive in with your preconceptions. So now, okay. Well, and I, <laughs> I just quickly, known, I yeah. want to say there are no shortage of people who I think believe themselves skeptics who are in fact cynics. Sure. Yes. They are mislabeling themselves and the way that they approach these kinds of stories is one of cynicism and not skepticism, going by this definition that you just read. Right. Now, see, so you're getting into my definition of a debunker. In yes. that, I don't care what you tell me, there's got to be some kind of really mundane explanation, which they will label as like, no, that's the fun part of reality. Like, no, no, you, you're not the fun part. The fun part is the goblin part. Right. You are the, uh, yeah, you are the, it's glowing fungus. Okay, yeah. that's, okay, yes, I love science. That's interesting. Not as much as if it was uh, zapped down by a uh, an alien ray. Yeah. That was rainbow colored and had sparkles. Yes. The idea here is that these make sense to me. I think Scott as well. I'm speaking yeah, for him. absolutely. And these are some good points we should all keep in mind, no matter what you believe. But as they say, keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. Jim Harold says that a lot. I, I love it. So <laughs> this is a great starting point in general, and especially the part where it says scientific skepticism means approaching claims with an open mind. We should be skeptical. We've never told anybody like, no, believe everything you hear. It's like, no, no, listen to as many different sources of information as you can and make your own decision according to what makes sense to you. And you don't, you really have a right to try and impress that upon other people because I don't care what your scientific background is. If it doesn't make sense to me, it's just not going to make sense. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the difference between science and pseudoscience. Ah, okay. So here is their section appropriately labeled science versus pseudoscience. And it says, the distinction between science and pseudoscience is not clear-cut. The demarcation problem, dash, the hoary question of how science differs from pseudoscience or non-science can lead to fruitful class discussion. And it gives a citation here. Yes, that comes from Philosophy of Pseudoscience, Reconsidering the Demarcation Problem by Pigliucci and Bowdry, oh. 2013, University of Chicago Press. Oh, there you go. Okay, so continuing on. Although this problem has not been... I, I think they mean not been yes. uh, definitely resolved. There's a, there's a typo here. Should probably check that out. Yeah. <laughs> it can be helpful to provide a set of warning signs that indicate a claim that may be pseudoscientific, in parentheses, for a review of the warning signs of pseudoscience. See Lilienfeld et al., 2012. Yeah, that's one of the authors of the article who wrote this along with an Amirati and also a David, Distinguishing Science from Pseudoscience in School Psychology, Science and Scientific Thinking as Safeguards Against Human Error published in the Journal of School Psychology in okay. 2012. All right. And then the last part here. From this perspective, science and pseudoscience differ in degree, not kind, but they often can be differentiated by means of a number of fallible but useful indicators. Stedovich, 2012. That's from How to Think Straight About Psychology, 10th edition. Boston, ah, very Boston, good. Boston, K.E. Stanovich. Okay. And then the last line, some of these key warning signs are, now here's a list of I believe some useful red flags, as they call them, things to keep in mind, not axioms per se, but just topic headers that make sense. And I'm just going to read them off here. And then when we get to the bottom part, as they apply to Hopkinsville, we'll explain in further detail what they're talking about, about these phrases. Yeah, these rules. Okay. Number one, the use of psychobabble, words that sound scientific, but are used incorrectly or in a misleading manner. Number two, a substantial reliance on anecdotal evidence. Number three, extraordinary claims in the absence of extraordinary evidence. Four, unfalsifiable claims. Five, an absence of connectivity to other research. Six, absence of adequate peer review. 
Number seven, lack of self-correction. So these all sound pretty good. And if they don't need a whole lot of explaining, we'll, we'll of course, do that later on here, as, they, as I said, as they apply. But we think these warning signs and red flags are good things for students of these kind of stories. Look, you don't have to be a student, but especially a student of science, good things to keep in mind as you approach these stories, especially ones you're not familiar with, especially if you're a young person, you're yes, just finding these things Yes, this is skepticism out. and not cynicism. Exactly. Yes. That's the point where you are, again... Open-minded. Taking, taking the data... But being critical. In, right. Taking yes. the data comes in and seeing how well does this stand up to these points. And so that's what they're doing here in the effort to help instructors bring this into the classroom because their thinking was that when you don't do that, that's when you have problems because it's a psychological tick, I guess, when people, especially students, when they hear something kind of crazy and it sticks in their mind, and the more you try and convince them with data that proves otherwise, they just get more and more reinforced. It is just a weird psychological property that happens to people where it doesn't get rid of it. It's like, we showed you that is not true. That doesn't, nah, I'm not going to believe it. So that's what the authors are trying to help with here, especially with uh, instructors in the science field. Now, the only thing that I would add is that I personally don't think you're ever going to be able to apply some of these items to the paranormal or the supernatural because those things just don't operate with any regard to our earthly human laws or rationality. What skeptics and debunkers want, and I personally make a distinction between the two, is 100% repeatable, accurate results under double-blind scientific methodological conditions. And I can't blame them, really. I want that, too. And I think we'd all like that kind of scientific proof. I'm just not sure we're ever going to get it. Just imagine what our world would be like and our reality and everyone's beliefs, what they would all be like if we could get that kind of proof. Yeah. It might just change everything. Do you remember the Etruscan legend of Tages, the little old man-baby that popped up out of the ground? <laughs> yes, from the course, The Mysterious Etruscans, over at The Great Courses Plus. And that's where Professor Tuck explains one of my favorite terms, autochthonous, which means having sprung up from the ground, or I guess aboriginal. Exactly right. And that's what happened with Tages. He popped up out of the ground as Tarkon was plowing his field. Yeah, that's happened to me before, you know, both when I was plowing, but also when I've been mistakenly buried. Oh, right, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Well, once this elderly baby appeared out of the dirt, he gave the Etruscan people the instructions on divination, which is the process for determining the will of the gods or the future through examining natural phenomenon like lightning or the flight of birds or animal entrails. Oh, so I guess I could go to a butcher shop and predict the future, or just look up in the sky. <laughs> well, but seriously, the Etruscan art of divination would have a tremendous impact on ancient history, and especially the history of Rome. In fact, as Professor Tuck said regarding the Romans, quote, at least three of her seven kings were selected through divination. In fact, every major public event, from meetings of the Senate to declarations of war, had to be approved in advance by the gods who let their will be known through various signs interpreted using the Etruscan methods. Wow, so does that mean I could have been made a king just based on how some intestines fell on a table? <laughs> oh, maybe the liver. Well, they, they, looked at, they actually looked at the liver. Oh my yeah. God. Well, it seems all people in cultures need to have some way to make sense of this mysterious world of ours, but it's just so fascinating that the Etruscan peoples had such an impact on the Western world, and then 
mysteriously faded away. Well, if you want to know what became of these mysterious Etruscans, we're not going to give out this more than 2,000-year-old spoiler. You can start learning about them right now over at The Great Courses Plus with their fantastic limited-time offer. Get your first month free. Plus, receive the second month for only 99 cents. That's unlimited access to enjoy their huge library of engaging video lectures for two full months for under a dollar. But to get this exclusive offer, you must sign up through our URL within the next few weeks, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, this special offer to get the first month free and the second month for just 99 cents is only available for a limited time and only by using our URL. So sign up immediately over at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, I'm Sam Ines, studio host of the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, and when I'm not talking baseball on the radio, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So, Scott, why don't you read this part here where they're basically talking about aliens in general and what their approach is going to be like. Yeah, yeah. in their little subsection, which yes. is titled Aliens and Goblins. I can't help but feel it's a bit derisive, but it's not necessarily. <laughs> it's just a title for the section, yeah. and it specifically applies to the Kelly Hopkinsville case. From the day the Earth stood still in 1951 to dark skies in 2013, aliens have been ubiquitous in popular culture. Alien abductions, invasions, or the mere existence of aliens provides a fascinating source of topics for classroom discussion. One example with which students may not be familiar is the curious case of the Hopkinsville Goblins. They're citing here Joe Nickel, who is a noted skeptic. Yeah, uh, the Center two- for Skeptical Inquiry. Yes, and this is from uh, 2006. In 1955, 11 witnesses claimed that they were attacked by aliens, whom were approximately four feet tall and bearing talons or claws. The aliens, or goblins, in quotes, as they were originally called, were silver, seemed to float or fly above the ground, and had thin legs. The goblins appeared shortly past 8 p.m. and terrorized the family until midnight. At this point, some members of the family escaped and sought help from local authorities. By the way, that's inaccurate. The entire family escaped. Given the details and vivid eyewitness accounts, students may assume the case offers compelling evidence of alien visitation. Instructors should encourage students to consider what additional evidence would be required to accept this extraordinary claim and to lay out plausible alternative explanations for the events. Here's the all-important section here, and I want you guys to listen to this. We mentioned a little bit of this from the Wikipedia page. The Hopkinsville entities have a decidedly earthly explanation. The aliens, in quotes, were in fact great horned owls, and the eyewitnesses were probably intoxicated during the, quote, alien attack, end quote. That preceding statement right there is cited to Davis and Blocker, 1978, the very report that we have drawn most of our research from for this entire series. Yeah, that was all of part one. Yes. (laughs) So what they're saying is that the Davis and Blocker report states that There's an earthly explanation, the aliens were great horned owls, and eyewitnesses were probably intoxicated during the attack. The next sentence, students usually find the true story of the events amusing. And this example can lead naturally into a discussion on Area 51, the greys, or otherworldly interests. Again, citing Nickel for 2012, and then P.J. Lehman and M. Cinerella from Beliefs and Conspiracy Theories and the Need for Cognitive Closure 
That's from Frontiers in Psychology as well. And I want to keep that phrase in mind. Mm. The need for cognitive closure. That's what they are uh-huh. saying people need when they use pseudoscience to evaluate these stories. Yeah, and okay. it sounds like what these guys need to Yeah, so <laughs> this article that many point to as identifying the Kelly Hopkinsville case as a hoax at worst or a misidentification of marauding owls at best is pretty weak. <laughs> it's a little crappy in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're Well, look, I think you're right, gonna, but we're going to point this out. Let's again. break it down for us. We're going to break it down. But I don't break want to make it sound like we're bagging on these guys, their knowledge, their academic standing, any of that, their research into this, because I think these are valid points. We're going to make a case here why I don't think it fits with this case. Well, let's and do that, that. And then it's kind of, they maybe didn't do due diligence as people like to say. so. Well, let's go back to those rules, the yes. seven rules that they mentioned were an important part of taking a skeptical approach right. to a pseudoscientific story or a story that has a pseudoscientific elements in nature. You've listed them out here as yeah. they apply. And the thing that I want to indicate again is that we're focusing on the fact that they are attributing a statement to Davison Blocker and the Center for UFO Studies report that states that that report indicates that there is an earthly explanation for the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins that they were great horned owls, and that everybody was probably drunk. Yes, and okay. kung fu fighting. And kung fu fighting. All right, <laughs> right, so let's go back to those rules. Okay, though. so the first one that we read off, it's in their list, is the use of psychobabble. So I'm just going to give you the definition here, although I don't really think it applies. Words that sound scientific, but are used incorrectly or in a misleading manner. For example, and they're drawing on uh, one major thing here <laughs> involving uh, qigong and Chinese medicine, so you'll get the gist here. So, for example, this is them saying, Energy therapies, quote unquote, for psychological problems are often premised on biofeedback, meridian lines, quantum energies, and a host of other concepts that may sound impressive but lack evidence. Good to keep in mind if you're going to buy a $5,000 biofeedback machine. Do your homework first. That's kind of what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it doesn't really apply here. By the way, this is a great improv drill. My wife used to do improv at the Groundlings. Oh, yeah. They call uh, this expert talking. Expert, exactly. <laughs> That's what psychobabble is. And yeah. it was also a, a coffee shop in my neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, since closed down, now it's a, a CrossFit. So like yeah. everything else. The idea, though, is that I don't think it really applies here, but it's good to keep in mind and watch out for buzzword terms because they instantly lead you down a path of thinking. Right. It's a good rule to consider in general yes. in the broad broader scope, it's right. not necessarily going to work for the kinds of stories we talk about on our show no. in most cases. And when I first but it's still re- good. Exactly. And then when you first read that conclusion line, which pops up a lot here and there, and that's why we're covering this article in such depth, is that I, it's like pseudoscience, like that doesn't apply to the stories of the Suttons. They're not applying any pseudoscience. They're just telling a story. Maybe they're talking about pseudoscience as the actual study or taking seriously of the Sutton's story. Right. And I figured that to mean it's like, what, we shouldn't listen to them or study that at all? So basically they're saying psychobabble and pseudoscience is often used in fields like ufology, but more of a medical background here. That's the whole thread here is they're talking really more medically. So number two, a substantial reliance on anecdotal evidence. Ah, right? this is the one of the most important ones. Exactly. So we're going to tell you what their definition of that is. Evidence for pseudoscience is typically anecdotal and consequently difficult to verify. For a class example, instructors may want to show students the Q-Ray bracelet website and read the many quotes submitted by Q-Ray users. 
quotes sound compelling, there is no scientific evidence to support any claims attached to them. In fact, the Q-Ray company lost a lawsuit in 2011 and was ordered to refund over $11 million to people who purchased a Q-Ray bracelet. Now, the most amazing part of that claim or definition is that I watched a lot of late night infomercials and I never heard of a Q-Ray bracelet. Have you? I haven't, but I do feel like I had a conversation with a friend at some point <laughs> who said they wanted to get one of these things. Well, now I do too. It sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, yes. Well, here's the whole thing with that. The fact is that in this paper, in Frontiers in Psychology, where they say that Davis and Blocker stated in their 1978 publication that the aliens in condescending quotes, were great horned owls, and the eyewitnesses were probably intoxicated, that is not an accurate representation. They're quoting something here, and uh, we're going to state this not to hammer them so much, but I believe it's deserving of a little bit of hammering here, because apparently they did not read the Davis and Bloker report. Now, I don't know why. It could be, the citation just could be a huge typo, which is bad enough in itself, really, because you're publishing a peer-reviewed scientific journal. I thought that these things were better checked out. Again, I'm not trying to be condescending here, but it's like people go off this thing as being totally accurate and measuring up to scientific rigor. But the fact that they mention that it was definitely decided, we're not saying it was owls. Yes, we are saying it was owls. It was owls and everybody was probably <laughs> drunk. Well, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. The very publication that they're trying to cite is the primary source for our series on the topic. And unlike the authors of this peer-reviewed paper, we actually read it. The source <laughs> they're referring to is the same one we've referenced several times, Close Encounter at Kelly by Isabel Davis and Ted Blocker for the Center for UFO Studies, published in 1978. And we can tell you categorically that at no point in that document does the word intoxicated even appear. Neither does the word owl or great horned owls. Now, we, of course, didn't see those words in there when we read it, but after we read this paper, I was like, what, did I miss a section? So we went back to the PDF, which we have, and did a text search through the PDF. We let the computer look for the words. And the closest word to owl we found in that entire report were words containing those three letters, such as knowledge, believe it or not, it has Ooh, an owl in the middle feel, of it. There you go. Knowledge, growl, and prowl, and variations of those. Oh, and bowling, as in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh-huh. The only time any notion of the Suttons and other witnesses being intoxicated is mentioned are in completely unsubstantiated suppositions made speculatively by a few police officers prior to any kind of investigation and after the investigation during which no evidence of intoxication was found. And again, the word intoxication or intoxicated does not appear in the report. The word drinking does. One of the officers said, oh, well, I think they were drinking. That was a pure blue sky supposition. So in fact, let us quote a section from the Davis and Blocker report ourselves, which I believe we already quoted in part one, but I just want to repeat this. Chief Greenwell supervised a thorough search of the house, the yard, and the outbuildings. Without making a point of it, he looked for evidences of drinking. None was found, either by him or any other investigators, to several of whom the same thought occurred. Mr. Ledwith, who we mentioned earlier as having done the drawings and being the guy, Mm -hmm. Bud, from the radio station, noticed a few beer cans in a rubbish basket the next day. Yeah, you could find that at my house, too. But the second point on which everyone I talked to seemed to agree was that there was no evidence that anyone at the farmhouse had been drinking. When interviewed by station WHOP, Mrs. Langford stated that liquor was not allowed in the farmhouse. Nevertheless, when Lieutenant Colonel Spencer Whedon of ATIC, which is a military acronym that means Air Technical Intelligence Center. 
referred to the Kelly case on the famous Armstrong Theater of the Air program on January 22, 1958, he allowed himself to hint broadly that liquor had been responsible for the whole story. That's the end of the quote from the report. So to be perfectly clear, the following sentence from the peer-reviewed Frontiers in Psychology, which is cited as being sourced from the Davis Blocker Kelly publication, states, quote, The Hopkinsville entities have a decidedly earthly explanation. The aliens were, in fact, great horned owls, and the eyewitnesses were probably intoxicated during the alien attack. And then it's cited as Davis and Blocker, 1978. That is whole sentence and idea is made up from whole cloth. It is complete hooey. It breaks their very own rule in that paper of a substantial reliance on anecdotal evidence. Well, that's all anecdotal, first of all. And then I have two problems, though, just in that one sentence. One, so the aliens were, in fact, great horned owls. Where are they getting this fact? That's a fact that they themselves did not check out. They're not even relying on anything reliable that says it was a fact. The second one is kind of a social one for me in that the eyewitnesses, quote, were probably intoxicated during the alien attack. Where does the word probably fit in with a scientific report? It doesn't make, yeah. Probably gravity has something to do with uh, the unified, uh, grand unified theory. Probably. How is that even allowed in a scientific thinking journal? Again, not to bang Also, it's it's an offensive supposition. It's, you know, look at these country folks. They're all out in the farm. They got drunk and saw aliens. Exactly. And you're getting my uh, populist in a ruffle here. It's a little bit of academic and social standing marginalization and elitism. Those are big political charge terms now, but what I want to say is that I think that's what's going on. These people are simple drunk hicks and they don't know what they saw. And by the way, they saw, we know for a fact they were owls. Even though we were not there, we didn't go there and we didn't even read the report on it. Well, no, I... And by the way, here's here's the other, you know, speaking of red flags, we only drilled down on this one source of the 20 or so that are cited with this paper. And the one we looked at There is zero connection between the statement made in the report that we looked at and what they said the report said. So how can we trust any of the sources in this paper? How do you know the whole thing isn't made up? It doesn't seem very peer-reviewed to me. That's all I'm saying. Well, they didn't... Here's their failing in that, again, the general larger concepts, I believe, are decent and worth considering. You don't have to believe them, but I think they're worthy of consideration. What they didn't do was any kind of follow-up or deep dive on them before using this instance, this event, as an example to support their hypothesis, their suppositions here. That's a little sloppy in my point. Again, the fact that they're probably intoxicated. Hey, look, you know, a lot of us have had a drink. A lot of people here listening, I'm sure, have been near a drunk person even a very drunk person, or a lot of us in this booth right now, (laughs) which will be happening to me later, yes, after this long tirade. But the point is that unless you're going through the delirium tremens, you're usually not hallucinating. No. And so you could be loving and wanting to hug an owl. That makes sense to me. People are like, I want to hug this owl. Yeah, it's so cute. I love you. Ow! Yeah, Yeah. is it rips your uh, skin off. 
people just saying like, well, he's a drunk. It's like, are you talking about pink elephants? Because that's a very advanced stage and a stereotype also, of people going through that. The so. other thing that's offensive about, well, there's a couple of things about that. Yes, we've all been around alcoholics. We all know alcoholics. I'm an alcoholic from time to time. <laughs> the point is, it's not going to be a few beer cans in a trash bin. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a big pile of right. beer cans, or it's going to be a lot of empty bottles yeah. in a cabinet or just thrown out in the backyard. I mean, this farm was not the picture of organization. No, it was, it was a little rundown. It was and, a little uh, rundown. They, they tried if they're the all drinking they like crazy, yeah. it's going to be super obvious. Mrs. Langford has said over and over, hard liquor was not allowed in the house. Right. You couldn't have hidden it. They all went to the police station and talked to the police the night it was happening, in the middle of it happening. And there was no evidence that they had been drinking then or seem inebriated. And then what are you going to, are you going to say all the kids, the three kids yeah. that are all preteen? Right. They're right. drunk too? Yeah. Give me a break. And I'll just say this now because, again, this comes up in another one of their points, is that if you told me, like, yeah, they had a giant pitcher of mescaline Kool-Aid, like, yeah. oh, Absinthe, right? right? Yeah. Wormwood's well, supposed to make you that. hallucinate, well, no. but it doesn't really, yeah, I don't Well, think. it, it kind of tints things green, which is uh, if you want to, yeah, get into yeah. the Toulouse-Lautrec and the green-tinted uh, Russian yeah. paintings, blah, blah, blah. So the idea, though, is that if they're all tripping... And seeing giant talking turkeys out the window, maybe if they're on massive hallucinogenics, that's one thing, psychotropic drugs, but they're all seeing the same thing. You say, well, maybe just one just described it, and they all start believing the same things. Well, they're describing things pretty similarly. So that falls apart. And plus, they that's right. See, yeah, and coming yeah. back to that, to your point just then, yeah. let's remember that Bud Ledford was there doing the drawing with the women in the absence of the men. Right. The men came back, saw the drawing, and said, this is it. They made slight changes. They put a nose, a more well-defined mouth, and a six-pack on it. But more or less, they described the exact same thing, and they were not in the company of each other. And if you had taken them downtown, in quotes, speaking of quotes, if you'd have taken them downtown because they were witnesses to a crime, yeah. it's a classic thing where you isolate them and put them in different rooms and see if their stories are the same. But what happened is when Billy Ray Taylor came back, he described the same thing that they had already drawn based on the ladies' descriptions. So right, just right. reminding everybody of that. Yeah. So again, I, and I think this happens, this does not with the practice of science, but with scientists, because it's practiced by people, is that there are preconceptions. And as much as you want to try and be objective, there are preconceived notions of certain classes of people and it's elitism, and it's a little bit of arrogance and hubris of like, you don't know what you saw, we know what you saw. Yeah. Well, you know what? My message for you, don't tell me what I saw. That's for That's actually quote. going on a mug that's just be for me personally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't tell me <laughs> what I no, saw. No, because I did, seriously, yeah. I'm a reasonably intelligent person. Don't tell me what I saw. I know yeah. what I saw. Yeah. You weren't there. You're writing exactly. a paper about it 40 years later. So. And not even reading the report. And not even that reading it very closely. And then okay. attributing an idea to. <laughs> I'm sorry. We come to the next one here. And actually a phrase or a turn of phrase that people say a lot is kind of uh, involved in this. So their other red flag here is, extraordinary claims in the absence of extraordinary evidence. Right. This is number three in their original seven or eight points about what to look for when you're trying to be skeptical and evaluating something. Right. Why don't you read here uh, when they describe it? Okay. In pseudosciences, assertions are often highly implausible in light of existing knowledge, yet are not backed by convincing evidence. For a class example, instructors may wish to describe how infomercials promoting Q-ray bracelets state that the bracelet rips pain right out of the body and are designed to optimize your natural positive energy. What do they have against the Q-ray bracelet? I don't that know. sounds fabulous. Yes, no, I, I, easy <laughs> example, I guess. <laughs> no, they, obviously they've been watching uh, a lot of late night TV. I get it. So they're pointing again, not so much to 
Kelly Hopkinsville directly, but to a claim of, of an item that you might buy. But you can reverse this principle. Absolutely. People always say uh, we've had it directed towards us. Kindly, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Basically, if you're going to like make me believe something kind of crazy, you better come up with some crazy powerful evidence to convince me. Right. Which they do not have. And they're out theory. Right, which is yeah. not necessarily an extraordinary claim. That's an ordinary claim. But to your own point, an ordinary claim must have ordinary evidence. Well, how about any evidence? So, any evidence yeah, so when of you the say, yes. Yeah, aside so, from a slight visual resemblance, <laughs> possibly, <laughs> yeah, w- overlooking which, yeah. the fact that apparently these folks that live in the country have never seen an owl in their lives. Right. Oh yeah. my God, it's an alien. All right. <laughs> so, but yes. what else? What else well, was no, it there? So, so here we go. So just ordinary evidence. There's no owl evidence. Where are the feathers? Where's the blood? Where's the tracks of the creeping owls that don't float, but they creep? A sighting of an actual owl by people who know what owls look like in their own backyard. Yes. They don't have any of that, at least in this paper, or point to it, where that's been provided. And owls evidence. are prominent in this part of the country. Exactly. And you know what? Owls can be aggressive, but they're usually aggressive during their mating season, which takes place from January throughout the winter. Right. This was August. Right. So at this point, what you're possibly going to have, if it's going to be owls or juveniles, again, juveniles are not going to do what these things did. Right. So for all the people on the owl train, if you want to say that this family that's living out in the country and it seems to think that an owl's an alien, <laughs> that an owl that they're probably seeing all the time yeah, for the yeah, record, yeah. that glows and makes a metal clinging sound when you shoot at it and yeah. is impervious to bullets. Right. If you want to say all of that stuff by the same token, then you have to say, no, it was owls. Where is the owl evidence? Where yeah. is the ordinary evidence in support of the ordinary claim? Okay, one, it could be that metallic cute owl from Clash of the Titans oh, and Harry yeah. Hamlin. I did like oh, that I like that. The, oh, everyone was Or Tyrell's hands. owl. Ah, the, the Tyrell genetically engineered. The genetically uh, engineered. Yes. Wait, he wasn't metallic, though. No, he probably was. No, he was in, not uh, metallic. He, was, the outside, he was biological, biological. But, but cost a fortune. Blade so, Runner. We're yeah, talking about Blade I, Runner, I, by right. the way. So I think he's going to keep those under wraps yes. and not let out of the uh, massive pyramid there. Yeah. If you're willing to accept that, like, yeah, they were attacked by owls. Okay, that makes sense. And maybe they were just so scared, they really didn't know what they were looking at through the window, but shot it nonetheless through the screen, point blank range with even as small as, let's say, a dove load on a shotgun, yeah. a 20-gauge shotgun, you'd see some feathers. You would have hit it. Yeah, There's a and hole blood. in the screen. And yeah, so they're not on peyote milkshakes. They yes. come out and there would be a dead owl there. And they've been firing at them for hours and claiming to have hit them. Even the skeptical articles that we're going to talk about here in a second, they said they hit one, it floated or fell out of the tree, and then just scurried off into the woods. But there's no, one, if you knock an owl out of a tree with a shotgun, it ain't scurrying anywhere. I mean, yes, unless you, uh, if you just winged it, but if you've ever been bird hunting, they flop around quite a bit. They just, excuse me, I'll be back in a minute. Well, and what you've said there goes right into the next one, which is number four, unfalsifiable claims, which their definition is most pseudoscientific claims are incapable of being refuted in principle. For example, proponents of traditional Chinese medicine believe the human body has an invisible energy force called the qi, Key is a crucial component of traditional Chinese medicine, even though it cannot be measured or tested scientifically. Back to the medical stuff. For them. Yeah, yeah, back to the medical stuff. And so, yes, they're talking about medical terms here, but they do mean these terms to apply to all paranormal stuff, not just medical ancient Chinese secrets here. Yeah. That's why they are stating these uh, examples, but really they mean these red flags to apply to all pseudoscientific and paranormal claims. So that's why we are following their lead and applying this 
to the Kelly Hopkinsville incident. What are you looking at? Uh, I'm on Twitter. It seems uh, someone from the ARC is worried that your life insurance or health insurance doesn't cover alien probing. That has to be Marie, right? <laughs> you know what? Let me check policygenius.com real quick. I'm not really seeing anything about alien abduction, but you are getting to that age where you're due for a medical test that's uh, kind of similar. <laughs> uh, thanks for the reminder. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that one. But in all seriousness, you do bring up a good point, and that's anything like an accident or an illness, or I guess alien abduction, can happen at any time. Look, bad things happen in life. You never know when, and you can't avoid it, but you can plan for it and make sure that your loved ones are taken care of with life insurance that you can afford. That's probably why something like 30% of U.S. households, that's around 35 million families, have zero life insurance, none. Now, they're probably just not thinking about it because, yeah, no one wants to think about it. But also, most Americans think life insurance costs two to three times more than it really does. And not thinking about something doesn't make it go away. Just ask the contactee. Yeah, well, so true. <laughs> but now you have a really easy solution for finding an affordable plan that's right for you. PolicyGenius.com is the place to go to learn about life insurance, compare quotes from America's top providers, and save up to 40% on your policy while you're doing it. Policy Genius has a real simple, user-friendly website where it only takes about five minutes to get a quote. And if you have any questions, they have a team of licensed experts who can talk you through it and find exactly what's best or what's not best for you and your family. And like we mentioned, it's not just life insurance. You can get health insurance or pet insurance or something else people don't think about. You can protect your income because one unfortunate incident can bankrupt a family. So, if you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure the insurance you have is right for you, check out PolicyGenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. The quotes are free, there's no sales pressure, and zero hassle. PolicyGenius.com. It's life insurance for the 21st century. I'm Kira Barsotti, and I love to listen to Astonishing Legends while I paint space girls in the Southwest. Let's get back to the show. All right, so the next point, absence of connectivity to other research. Here's briefly their definition. Connectivity refers to the extent to which assertions build on extant knowledge. So in this case, they're not checking any other sources, really, to support their claims. Yes, we're applying their <laughs> own rules to their own paper here. Yeah. We're making the point that... Right, no surviving knowledge from any other sources other than this one paper, which they didn't seem to read. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so now moving on here. Yes. Uh, number six, absence of adequate peer review. Now, their discussion here, peer review is far from perfect, but it is a key safeguard against error. Instructors may wish to encourage students to contrast the claims advanced by the authors of peer-reviewed versus non-peer-reviewed articles. Well, we've we've clearly <laughs> shown that this this <laughs> Why article. Why are we peer reviewing this? Because obviously yeah. we found uh, a couple of things that didn't make sense. But here's my point with this. And by the way, technically we're not peers because these, no. these people are all educated. Yeah, no, they have degrees and <laughs> but much, they didn't uh, review it fancier. either. Yeah. Well, the point with this one is that look to sources that other people have looked to. Because they've obviously checked this out like, wait a second, I'm a psychologist, and I'm also into UFOs and owls. And I, I read that thing, and this conclusion is wrong. That's what they're talking about. Well, obviously, the fact is other mainstream scientists, psychologists, they're not going to waste time checking this out. They're yeah. going to go with it. And that is kind of a little bit of a tragedy. 
in that uh, they're just going to like, oh, these guys uh, quoted it. They looked at a paper. It's quoted here. So we're going to go with that because also to us as mainstream scientists, that makes sense. Yeah. So they move on. Yeah. That's just going to happen. I don't fault anybody for that. That's just the way the world is. Then we get to number eight, lack of self-correction. Pseudosciences frequently persist despite refutation. Often, proponents of pseudoscience will use the idea that since the treatment or idea has been used for thousands of years, it must be correct. E.g. exempli gratia, astrology, in parentheses there, an error often called ad antiquatum. And uh, I think they misspelled antiquieta. Yeah, <laughs> so there's the beauty of that. Yeah, right. In the section called lack of self-correction, they misspelled Ad the very example yeah. of <laughs> that they were trying to use. Yeah, and it's not the only typo in this paper, by the yeah, way. Yeah, there's a couple. Really, yeah, so did, it's not yes. only is it not peer-reviewed, it's not editor-reviewed. It's not, it's not proofread. <laughs> it uh, has now been reviewed by a couple of guys doing a podcast in a garage, though. I exactly. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> hey, come on. This is a guest house. I know. Don't, yeah, don't yeah. Uh, sell yeah, short here. It's much, much better. Exactly. Well, here's the idea about ad antiquietatum. Right. And that it appeals to antiquity. That's the definition of it. And appeals to common practice. So the idea is that this idea has been around so long, people have been doing X, Y, or Z for a it thousand years. It must be years. true. It must be true. Now, here's the irony involving this story. As we said, and, and I want uh, Scott to explain what Dr. Coggs means by a peer-reviewed journal's rating yes. quickly here after I get done with this. Yes. Again, the irony and the sad part of this is that everyone's going to look to this paper. They're going to cite it like, well, there you go, Kelly Hopkinsville, drunk hicks, owls, we're done. And that's what happens. Jason Colavito, in a recent series of tweets calling out Lauren Coleman, was saying like, you know, he's been spending 10 years pointing out how bad information is borrowed and just re rewritten and recopied into other publications. And I agree, that should be fleshed out. Just quickly, Lauren Coleman, for those of you that don't follow us on social media or don't know who he is, is a long-running expert in cryptozoology yes. with his own little museum yeah. up in Maine. Lovely, uh, nice guy, very yes. well-respected. Many published books and works on cryptozoology. Right. And a, and a very critical approach to... Anything that's discovered in that realm. Exactly. So I, I guess this is very topical here, but what the yeah. little dust-up was is that he gave a kind of a, an obituary tribute to a friend of his, a colleague, and Jason Colavito pointed out on Who is what, Jason Colavito? He's like Joe Nickel, and he's like Brian Dunn. Oh, he's just writes, a, skept, a published yeah, skeptic. exactly. I think we first mentioned him in the Oak Island series as yes, having written that's a paper. why I recognize it. And yeah. he's very well-read, very studied. He's very serious about this. But in, he pointed out like, hey, you in your tribute here, or your obit tribute, you borrowed a lot of this from Wikipedia. And his reasoning was, and that I don't Lauren disagree. borrowed a lot yeah. for his friend's... Obit. Right. For yeah. his friend's obit, rather than, I guess, researching and drafting something new on his own. Right. I guess his point was like, look, I told you it was, you know, I copied this or, or borrowed from it. And you make it clear that that's what you did. So, but Jason's point was, and I don't disagree with this, is that he was tired of years and years, 10, a decade of people borrowing stuff that's incorrect and just borrowing incorrectly from each other. And it's incorrect the whole way down and he's fleshing it out. Well, that's of, what's uh, happening in this paper. Exactly. Not that there were any kind of crusaders here, no. but what's going to happen is people are just going to keep pointing to this saying, yeah, it's been solved. There's nothing to see here. These guys figured it out. Let's move on. Where well, it was, they didn't really do that. And to your point, when we wanted to take a look at whether or not we were understanding this correctly and whether or not this paper was actually incorrectly citing knowledge from the Davis Blocker Center for UFO Studies report, we contacted 
one of our members in the Astonishing Research Corps, Dr. Chris Cogswell, who is a obviously a friend of the show. He has his own podcast, the Mad Scientist Podcast, which you can check out if you want to go deep on science, because, man, <laughs> he knows it. He's hilarious. He's yes. funny. He's got a lot of great energy. And, yeah, he makes you feel very small. Yes, <laughs> but, but one of the things that he talked about with papers like this and peer-reviewed papers and the journal that they're in is that the journal – usually has what's called an impact factor. And the impact factor is a rating of how often papers are cited in that journal. The impact factor of Frontiers in Psychology, which published this peer-reviewed article that we've been talking about, is 2.463. And he said that was a pretty good rating. That generally means that this paper is cited up to two and a half times a year, roughly. We can tell you right now, just from the journal, which follows all the rules and it's very transparent, it explains that the article has been cited five times alone just within the uh, website where it's mentioned. Here are all the articles citing this original paper, which incorrectly states that the 1978 Kufos report says that the Hopkinsville goblins were owls. The articles are titled, Redefining Critical Thinking, Teaching Students to Think Like Scientists, again by Rodney Schmaltz, Eric Jansen, and Nicole Winkowski. Another one called Single and Dual Process Models of Bias Contingency Detection by Vadio Blanco, Yaritu, and Matut. Another one called Individuals Who Believe in the Paranormal Expose Themselves to Biased Information and Develop More Causal Illusions Than Non-Believers in the Laboratory by Blanco, Barbaria, and Matut. Illusions of Causality, How They Bias Our Everyday Thinking and How They Could Be Reduced. Again, by Matut, Blanco, Yorito, Marcos Diaz-Lago, Vadio, and Barbaria. And another one called Teacher Signal Detection Theory with Pseudoscience by Nicole Anderson. All five of these cite this paper, which incorrectly states that an older source has made it clear that the goblins were owls in this case, and that all the people on the farm were probably drunk. So (laughs) this article has already been spread throughout the academic world and is being used as a source. It's the very thing that Forrest was just mentioning that we often hear from the more cynical skeptics that are out there about what supposedly the people on the other end of the spectrum, which you can probably lump us in with, are doing with the kinds of stories we're telling and the evidence that we're trying to dig up. And it's just as my wife would say, hello, pot, this is Kettle, you're black. (laughs) Well, it's, (laughs) again, to Colavito's point, which is a valid one, is that this happens with fringe writing, as as he said, you know, in his point of view, it only happens. Well, he's stating mostly this happens with fringe writing, uh, paranormal writers and people who delve in this subject. That's what they do. He's out to stop it. Well, everything is human. Scientists are human. People who write fringe paranormal stories about Bigfoot and UFOs, they're also human. And uh, it goes both ways because we're human. And as we mentioned in the David Foster Wallace speech, this is water, it's a human trait. It doesn't matter about your background and, or how objective or smart you think you are. You're still human and you have human foibles. Okay, so here we have a whole section marked out as owls. And yeah. I love owls. They're wise and they're fierce. And if you've ever uh, seen a documentary of them, like they're just amazing creatures. But here's a point I want to make as we get to kind of summarizing two of the um, skeptical papers on this that are also often mentioned regarding this case, and one is from Joe Nickel, very well-respected writer, I guess you could say professional skeptic in a way. Yes, yeah. 
But he's not the only guy there, right? Oh, no, no, yeah. He's just a contributing investigator, you could say, and author and contributing writer. Isn't this the group that was co-founded or partially co-founded by the amazing Randy, James Randy, <laughs> uh, who we talk yeah, about a lot yeah, on the show, as yeah. well as Carl Sagan? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I'll tell you about the name. So basically, it's called the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And it had a longer name, CSICOP. It's just, it's actually Psychop. It's actually too long to Coming to a here. theater near you, Psychop. <laughs> exactly. So let's just shorten it down to Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And the Skeptical Inquirer is their journal. The cop part stood for. Here's the full title here yeah. Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Claims of the Paranormal. Yes, so that's they, the, they cop cut the cop. Part. Yes. They took the out, but they let the O in for of. Yes, so it's just CSI. People are just no good with acronyms. (laughs) Well, I love the fact that paranormal is in there, or used to be, because it really, it kind of tells you what they're about. It's like these extraordinary claims should be investigated and should be documented. Right. And they have a mission statement here. I'll just quickly read this. Yeah. The mission of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry is to promote scientific inquiry, critical investigation, and the use of reason in examining controversial and extraordinary claims. And then there's uh, six objectives, which we will not get into here. It had some very lauded members, like you said, Carl Sagan, Isaac Asimov, Philip Klass, Paul Kurtz, Ray Hyman, James Randi, the amazing James Randi. Yes. Martin Gardner, Sidney Hook, and others. By the way, if you want to see a really amazing documentary, I don't know for, if for people outside of the realm of what we're interested in, because I think it only had a rating of three stars on Netflix, but I oh. loved it. It's on Netflix right now. It's called An Honest Liar, and yeah. it is about James Randi, who I am very much in awe of. I'm a huge fan of his, even though I disagree with some of his philosophies and approaches to things as a skeptic. But there's a lot of how he works that I do agree with. But this documentary, his life is so multifaceted. And Forrest, you're the one that told me about that. I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned it to me. An Honest Liar. Yes, it was on, on, I saw it on PBS. It was airing. It's been playing for a while, but that was, I think, last month. So you may have to catch it on Netflix or somewhere else. But it was one of the running uh, documentaries on independent lens, perhaps. They show some great documentaries. So getting back to CSI, yeah, it's kind of an organization to study all these claims. And Joe Nickel is one of the leading contributors, I believe, to the Skeptical Inquirer, which is their journal. And if you just go and search on anything like the major stories that are out there on the paranormal, chances are Joe's investigated it. Yeah, and if you want to look him up, it's nickel just like the coin, except there's two L's. Yes, N-I-C-K-E-L-L. We'll, yeah. we'll, of course, have a link to this article. But it's a lot of fun just go in there and poke around and see what he has to say. Yes. Because he did weigh in on Kexburg. Yeah, he probably has weighed in on yeah, 90% of the shows <laughs> we've covered. He's weighed in on yeah. everything. Yeah. And I think the first time I came across Joe's name was way back on Oak Island. And the other investigative author is Brian Dunning, who we've also mentioned quite a bit. And I think he has a pretty decent article on this case as well. Yes. But here's my thing about both of them and anybody else who, even the article we just went over, the scientific psychological article there, with this case, they are saying, okay, obviously these folks are traumatized. Well, we don't really know what happened to them, but if something did, it was owls. So as we just mentioned, in some of the things that they've talked about, this cause just being owls doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I know that when you just kind of read, if you if all you did was just read Joe Nichols' article or Brian Dunning's, it's like, well, I didn't read anything else about the case. 
that seems logical. Yes, and I want to point something out real quick. The psychological paper we were referring to that we just sort of like took apart based on that one reference to right, House right. actually is post-dated after both of the, the Nickel and the Dunning articles that we're mentioning. Right. They but, predate that. The point is that Nickel and Dunning drew that information or those conclusions about Al's from somewhere else. They did not draw them from the paper that we were just saying. Yes. A, that had right. obviously influenced multiple other papers on pseudoscience and skeptical inquiry. Exactly. Now, I'm going to take a, a slightly brutal approach here, but if you are going that route and saying, well, I mean... I'm going to believe the part where all this crazy stuff happened and there was a shootout, a one-sided shootout for nearly four hours and police reports and uh, 25 people showing up to the scene. But I'm going to say it's owls, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense. But I could see where people, after their explanations, could see that. My point is, why believe them in the first place that anything happened? Yeah. Like, what if, you know what I'm saying? If like, if I, the, my best answer is owls on this, I'm going to say like, nah, boy, that sounds kind of thin. I'm just going to go with made the whole thing up. Yeah. I'm going to go with possibly drunk hillbillies. Well, not to be putting anybody down. I'm just saying that like. How dare you bring my family into this. <laughs> yes, you're, you're proud roots. <laughs> it's pretty thin to me just coming up with, just to end the note on owls. That explanation is kind of thin but I also get that if you come from that place where nothing crazy ever happens, nothing magical or paranormal or supernatural, it's got to be owls. Quickly here, what I was going to say is I'll just quickly sum up uh, Joe Nichols' articles that, yes, that's the conclusion he comes to. Him and this uh, other young uh, French ufologist, which uh, apparently is very debunky, he basically says, the Flatwoods monster, owls, Mothman. Mothman. Owls. Banded owl. Banded owl. Banded owl. This yes. one, owls. It's, it's, so yeah. his, his meme should be, I'm not saying it's owls, but it's owls. Yeah, and not only that. And it's, it's an answer for everything. Yeah, it's and not only owls. that, everybody yeah. in the world who experiences something has clearly never seen an owl in their life. <laughs> I, know, like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's four feet tall. It's yeah. like, that's not, a, if it is, man, you are on another planet because that is a giant owl. Yeah. That is like a prehistoric owl that, uh, that could eat you. So, Well, yeah, even, I can't remember, was the Dunning or Nichols cited the owl as being up to 25 inches tall. That was Joe Nichol. Yeah. yeah, that was Joe Nichol. But in reality, the, some of the largest ones were, I think, maybe 18. They're nowhere near three or four feet. Well, that was, so just to, to recap that, Joe Nichol did say 25 inches. I believe I did see that on Wikipedia in the entry for great horned owls, which he believes that this is what the case is here. It's a great horned owl with tufts on the head, mistaken for giant floppy ears, talons, the whole thing. To correct myself, 25 yeah. inches at the biggest in place Places like Canada, average size is 18 inches, weighing between two to five and a half pounds. Exactly. That's the extreme size of owls, not in this region. Right. And females are a little larger than the males usually. But in this region, that's a really freaky big owl for Kentucky. Yeah. And my other point is that Joe makes is like, oh, well, the arms, that could have been the, the owl turned sideways in profile. Those look like long strangly arms here. Them, when they got shot and they kind of floated down out of the tree, well, an owl could be perceived to have floated down from a tree because they're Wouldn't silent. Wouldn't it have to like, open well, its wings exactly. to float? They're, yes, they don't, they're not a, when they're they not a cartoon. Here's something that nobody from the Sutton Farmhouse said. No one ever said the word feathers. Feather, exactly. wings. They right. never said wings. They never said feathers. No. And how many yeah. owls waddle across the yard? What does right. an owl do? It walks a couple of inches, <laughs> and then it flies places. Yeah, now it can land or take off, and it'll do a little run, but yeah. that's not what they were saying. Because what Joe's saying is that, again, to summarize his points here, is that he's saying 
these things probably look like they were floating. If they're sitting in a tree, they look like they could be levitating or they look like they could be floating down from the tree. Well, they glide down. They don't drop straight down. And when you shoot them, they don't do a little backflip and then uh, scramble off into the woods and come back again. The other point is that uh, the eyes, it's like, well, they have great horned owls, big glowing yellow eyes. Well, those are probably the size of a quarter. Mm -hmm. We're talking about descriptions of eyes the size of baseballs. The other important thing I want to bring up here that Joe says in his article is that everybody says they were glowing, but really, Mrs. Lankford said the phrase she used was shiny. Well, that might have been the lights shining off the feathers. It's like, well, they're, they're, unless you're a, an iridescent hummingbird, owl feathers are kind of, uh, what say, matte, let's say. Yeah. They're not shiny. There's no reflective, shiny, no, they silvery. They're designed to look like tree bark. Exactly. So yeah. they, they blend in. And now the other owl that's that large, I think even larger than the great horned owl, is the snowy owl. Yeah. But they're all white. So that's and not the barred owl. That's the other one that yes. they say. Well, oh, yes. Like the Jersey Devil, the barred owl. Right, the white one, the kind of the weird alien-looking one. But it's just slightly larger. These aren't four feet tall. Also, they, there were no yeah. tracks at the house. So, exactly. So what he's saying is that I think what Joe is saying, because he went there and he talked to people. He went there in 2005 for the festival. They actually hired him for, I believe it was the 50th anniversary. Uh-huh. Hey, come on over here and clear this all up. This will be kind of fun. So they invited him over. He met everybody. And uh, then he made his conclusion, and I believe his article's from 2006, so sometime after that, when he wrote this. 51 years after it happened. Yeah, so he's- Just for the record. Exactly. So it's kind of a definitive, like, just tell us what those old folks saw back then, and that's his conclusion, but it just doesn't line up for me. Now, Brian Dunning, I believe, to quickly sum up his article, takes a little of what Joe says and makes some other good points. And he, he mentions like the drinking part of it. Well, that was just the one officer. And uh, he didn't really say that, at least to the first uh, reporter on the scene. That was kind of a snide, like, well, I think this attack came out of a bottle or can. So, well, that's his opinion. But the officer in charge, the police chief there, didn't believe any, any drinking had happened. And we just talked about that. So, again, that doesn't make any sense. And he kind of goes through, Brian Dunning does, he again has to kind of land on to him and what Joe has described and what he's done, you know, research that he's done. Owls have to be the best conclusion, and that's the one that he lands on. And he does have an interesting line here towards the bottom when he gets to his conclusions. I just want to read that. Mr. Dunning says, That's not to say that the family wasn't genuinely frightened. I believe they were, and I believe their report to police was absolutely honest. And from the perspective of people who had undergone a traumatic ordeal, Lucky Sutton is described by ufologists as having been a rock-solid, no-nonsense kind of guy who would never make up a story. Well, maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. It doesn't matter. Rock-solid, no-nonsense guys are just as capable of being scared or mistaken as anyone else. So that raises the biggest question of the whole story. What were these creatures that looked so much like little, big-eyed, skinny-legged aliens? And then he goes into owls. I'm not saying it's owls, right, but, but I'm saying it's owls. owls. Right. But I, I did like that statement because, again, he's saying these people were frightened. I believe well, that. the whole thing that's going on with Dunning and Nickel and any other skeptic that, as you said, is going to refuse to believe in anything otherworldly is that they have to find the closest earthly explanation. Absolutely. And you know what? For the closest earthly explanation, an owl is as close as you're going to get. I monkeys. Think. Monkeys. The monkeys. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. And coming down to the yeah. hypotheses at the end of the Center for UFO Studies report, they did not mention owls, as we very clearly stated earlier. But what they did mention, just briefly, their four ideas for possible theories back at that time in the 1978 report were monkeys, 
intoxication, hallucination, and self-protection. And just briefly... Oh, yes, back to the self-protection. Yeah, well, the the monkey report was that this traveling circus, the King Circus, was passing through town. A truck with monkeys on it got separated from the other trucks and accidentally went up 41 towards the Sutton Farm instead of the other way that the other trucks went, and they let the monkeys out to exercise them (laughs) on leashes? I don't know. And then the monkeys escaped into the woods and went and tormented the Suttons. This is, again, presuming that the Suttons have no idea what a monkey looks like, didn't see that it had a tail, didn't hear the monkey chattering, which is what all monkeys do, all of that stuff. And on top of that, when they looked into the existence of the circus and the trucks and all the whole story was just completely made up. The circus did exist, but it went out of business in 1955, so there was nobody to ask about that. There was no proof or any evidence of any kind that it was ever even in the area, and I don't know how you could, frankly, get lost in Hopkinsville because it's a very small town, and I say that as somebody with lots of family from small (laughs) towns. The other theory was that they had been drinking, which they brought up just because of that. Some officers had suggested it. We've already covered that. They didn't find any evidence of that, and we're not going to say anything else about that. A final theory was hallucination, that they were all hallucinating. Again, unlikely, improbable, in unison, all seeing the exact same thing, including the children. And then the final one was self-protection. There was a theory that the Suttons had gotten into an argument with neighbors and accidentally murdered somebody, and they made up the story to cover it up so that if the, I guess, if the body was found, Mm. they could say, we (laughs) thought it was an alien. (laughs) Only problem with that is... Again, it was made up from whole cloth. There was yeah. no evidence of it. No one was missing. No one was wounded. There were no arguments with any neighbors, and those people didn't exist. So that's the end of all of those theories. There is, again, no mention of owls in that paper, but lots of other people seem to be mentioning owls. In a lot of ways, the owl theory seems to be the flavor of the month for the latest explanation, much like UFOs change shape with yeah. ongoing generations right. of people. So, well, I'm just, you know, it's the poor man's Sandhill Crane. Yes. So I'm just glad that wasn't mentioned. You know, I'm not sure what's going on, but I feel like our show is trying to really take over my life. <laughs> it's become quite an endeavor. It seriously has, but I love it, thank God, so that makes it easier. Still, when you work a lot like we do, it's easy to lose track of the balance in your life. One way that I really like to hang on to that balance is cooking dinner with and eating with my family a few times a week. And that's why I'm so glad we have Blue Apron. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. And in our house, I like that because it's a great time for me to catch up with my family, especially my eight-year-old son. It really is nice to slow down for a minute and fix an incredible home-cooked meal. And not only that, It's one that you can feel good about because the produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming and the beef, chicken, and pork all come from responsibly raised animals. And I love the seafood recipes too. And those fresh ingredients are sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. That makes me feel good because with Blue Apron's delicious seafood recipes, like the upcoming sautéed shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta, it's nice to know that all that stuff is coming from responsible sources. (laughs) Yeah, I always make the seafood dishes first, too. I don't know. what They're just really good. Well, it's that flexibility, the variety, and the ease and affordability. Those are all just some of the reasons Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Go check out all the options you have, along with this week's menu, and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, my name's Marissa, and I'm the host of a podcast called The Vanished. 
I started the show back in January of 2016 to try to bring awareness to some lesser-known missing persons cases. I interview family members, law enforcement, and private detectives about cases from all over the country, old cases and new cases. In episodes 85 and 86, I covered the disappearance of three-year-old Christopher and 15-month-old Lisa Mae Zaharias. The children were abducted from California in 1987. Even though this is an older case, it's a very hopeful case because it's believed that they're both still alive, possibly living under new identities, and they may not even know they're missing. In part one, I interviewed private investigator Philip Klein, who's been chasing down hot leads since he took over the case a couple years ago. The Zaharias case is a very unique case because it is an ultimate cold case. It's one of those cases that investigators like myself rarely get an opportunity to sink our teeth into. In part two, I interviewed Louis Zaharias, who's been searching for his children for 30 years. I'm just hoping that I can see my children one more time and maybe see my grandchildren if I have any and kind of see what kind of people they turned into. You can listen to The Vanished at thevanishedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. You just never know. You could hold the key to solving this case or one of the many other cases featured on the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Hall, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. We spent a lot of time on on the owls, and we spent a lot of time on because that's the most prominent and most recent theory. Yeah, and, and the whole part of that before that, but it just proves we can sure blab, can't we? Yeah, <laughs> and we spent a lot of time on that peer reviewed academic paper that apparently was not peer reviewed. Well, no, that was um, important. And again, I wanted to do that. It makes I, a lot of valid points, by the way. Well, it's, but, but it's often pointed to in general about a lot of topics we cover here. Yes, as it is. being like, well, it doesn't follow this, and I, yeah. I want extraordinary proof if you're going to make an extraordinary claim. Here's that iconic paper That's on exactly. pseudoscience, which right. is not in itself, has apparently not been So in the future, just, we're just going to point you to this episode of three yeah. and a half hours, of this, yeah. you know, whatever. So just to wrap up, there has been a later breaking development on the Hopkinsville goblins from the guys over at Week and Weird, which I can't really call friends of the show, we've exchanged a few emails, but like us, they are enormously busy. They have a traveling museum of haunted artifacts, but they do really interesting stuff. Their names are Greg Newkirk and Dana Matthews. And we've tried to reach out to them a few times and they wrote back, but and then we write them back. But each email is like three months apart. So I- anyway, we didn't want to do this show without pointing out that they had a pretty fascinating update. On a the, real world update. Yes, on the Kelly Hopkinsville story. And this update started in 2012 and went on through 2015 and possibly to this day. It's far too much to discuss here, but suffice it to say, they came up with this timeline and hypothesis connecting the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins with another incident that took place in far eastern Kentucky in 2012 that they heard about from a mysterious man who later disappeared. Then they connect this to the brown mountain lights from my home state of North Carolina and tie it all together with hundreds of miles of underground cave systems, primarily under Kentucky. Yeah, it's like that. And here's what it is. These things are living in caves in the South, coming out occasionally to mess with people. Now, my favorite part... of the Week and Weird piece, yeah. is the mention of a guerrilla group of ex-Vietnam veterans formed in the 70s who made it their business to seek out and destroy subterranean alien bases inside caves and abandoned mines in the United States. Uh-huh. 
So that's where we're going to have to get off that train because that story is so far out. <laughs> and by Greg yeah. Newkirk's own admission, it has a lot of speculation in it. But we've gotten mm. an email out to those guys about that story and their investigation. And when we get in touch with them, we'll have them on for a follow-up show about all this down the line. And yeah, they, they do all the great stuff. We just never have time to do. They actually get out in the field. Yeah, they're yeah. out on the road. So in the meanwhile, if you live in rural Kentucky, Tennessee, or North Carolina near the borders of those states, I would suggest spending more time inside at night. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, yeah. a forced, I think we should talk a little bit just briefly about our theories. I did want to say yeah. this show topically is a prime example of everything is connected in such a weird way. I wanted to mention these points. I alluded to these in part one, but we scheduled this show prior to knowledge of the eclipse. I mean, I knew yeah. eclipse was pending sometime this year, but I didn't know the date. We scheduled it prior to knowledge of the eclipse being on the 62nd anniversary of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. We scheduled it prior to the knowledge that Hopkinsville is the sweet spot in the United States for the longest eclipse totality. And we also scheduled it prior to the knowledge that it was home to the Sleeping Prophet, a man we have mentioned a ton of times on this show, mm -hmm. but still not done our own show on, Edgar Casey. Yeah, yeah. He is from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Well, he was born on March 18th, 1877, on a farm near Beverly, probably another unincorporated little uh, farmland neighborhood there, yes. south of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, very close. Yes. So yeah, he's from the Hop. Yes, Hop <laughs> so, Town. Hop Town. So yeah, he's from the area, and they're going to do a little festival because it's one of the best spots to see the total eclipse. Yes. Now, his foundation is in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and they will have a little celebration there. That's where all his readings are and uh, his collected works and people who maintain them. They also have uh, holistic products that they sell, all natural kind of stuff that he prescribed while he was alive to people uh, diagnosing their problems, uh, medical problems. So, the sleeping um, prophet. Yeah, the sleeping prophet, because he would kind of go into a trance, and then uh, people would ask him questions, and he would diagnose stuff. Now, a lot of skeptics will say, like, well, he was wrong on a lot of predictions. But then I was reminded of Mothman. It all comes back to Mothman, where we were talking about the John Keel things and, and some things that were predicted but happened on the wrong dates. I'm not saying that that's the same thing. But nobody has a real line on, like, this is happening at, you know, and there's a date, and it's going to be disastrous, and then it happens, like, oh, my gosh, because then everybody flocks to that source. Like, yeah. tell us next what's going to happen. Yeah. He was basically just a simple man, took no money or didn't, took very little, but really didn't want to turn this into a business, but he had this kind of strange gift that started from childhood, which was these kind of psychic abilities. And so people have tied this in, the, the eclipse happening, to his hometown. And it's not like he actually predicted the eclipse happening on the date, because we have science for that. The Museums of Historic Hopkinsville-Christian County Director of Collections, Hillary Sullivan, says that we're coming out of the age of Pisces, which was more technologically focused, and we're coming into the age of Aquarius, which is all about peace, love, and understanding. And I say, isn't that nice for a change? And what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Why not? Why not? I say, welcome it. You know what? That would be nice for a change, wouldn't it? Yes, that would be awesome. And maybe it will all start in Hopkinsville. Well, whatever happened in Kelly Hopkinsville back in 1955, on August 21st of this year, the 62nd anniversary of the encounter and the day of the annual Kelly Green Men Festival... Beginning at 1.24 and 39 seconds p.m., 
or as you like to say in military time, Forrest. 1,324 hours and 39 seconds. Yes. The solar eclipse of 2017 will start its greatest moment of totality in the United States, meaning that there will be two minutes and 40 seconds of total eclipse in this area. Remember, you must have your eclipse glasses to view the eclipse. Do not stare at the eclipse directly. And, and don't do what our, our friend Marty did, which was tape two pairs of Oakleys together. Yeah, I, that doesn't work. <laughs> well, he, I hope his vision is fine. No, but seriously, you yeah. can cause permanent damage. In fact, I have yeah. a friend who has a permanent spot in his eye just from the setting sun being in his side view mirror oh, on a road trip. Terrible. So he's got that for the rest of his life. Oh. So don't joke around with it. During the eclipse, the moon's shadow will be moving 1,449 miles per hour, and the totality shadow in the Hopkinsville area will be 71 miles wide. It's estimated 4 million people will be able to get to the totality path in Kentucky, with anywhere from 63,000 to a quarter million people actually doing it. Who knows? Maybe the eclipse will be the least interesting thing you see if you get to Hopkinsville, Kentucky on August 21st of this year. I did want to add one other quick thing about the glasses. They're selling out if they haven't sold out already. Yeah, you might be out of luck. Yeah, I'll tell you right now, there are people selling them on Amazon where you can get three for $75. Oh. But it's ridiculous because yeah. you can just go right to the manufacturer, which is American Paper Optics. They're the ones making them pretty much right. for the whole world, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about the kind of the... The paper the, wraparound yeah, ones. Exactly. But, the disposable ones. Yeah, but the American Paper Optics ones are ISO certified. They are safe to wear and look at the eclipse. They're, you know, 100,000 times darker than regular sunglasses. The thing about American Paper Optics is that you can go directly to their manufacturer page and order them yourself. Right. But because it's getting so close, they are running low. I think their factory is running 24 hours a day right now, and they're only selling them in bundles of 25, but you can get 25 for $4 a pair, so it's $100. Yeah. So if you go in with some friends or whatever, you can get 25 pair. We've been buying some for my son's school. Lots of parents are, like, chipping in so the kids can all check it out safely. So I would say check that out, check it out soon. It's not cheap, but it's better than standing out there with nothing. And, <laughs> well, there's, uh, <laughs> there's, all, there's not just that. There's all kinds of products. There's sunoculars. Yeah. They're, what, like $125? 130 probably. yeah, okay. right now. You know, For... the day after the eclipse, there'll be five. <laughs> well, just invest if you like looking at the sun more than this time. Because yeah. the next time, when's that going to happen? There's an eclipse on August 23rd of 2044, but that one's only going to be visible mostly up in Canada. Right. On August 12th of 2045, the next year, there's going to be another one a lot like this one. Right, It's going to run right across the U.S. This one, instead of starting in the Pacific Northwest, is more Northern California and running down over Florida. Looks to me like it's passing right over the Coral Castle, by the way. Oh. And uh, so that yeah. one's uh, August 12th, 2045. And right. uh, well, I, I find myself yeah. wondering, like, will I be around to see that one with my son? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? But they happen all the time, sometimes out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. We'll have a little explainer video. Scott found a good one, which kind of explains, you know, it has to be the distance uh, because the moon's orbit around the Earth is elliptical, not totally round. And sometimes it's too far away. And so this is just the right occasion here that it is crossing diagonally a major swath across the United States. So that's rare in itself. Plus the moon is close enough to make an impression. If the moon is too far away, it's not ideal. 
So what's really happening here is, is it's a perfect set of conditions. It's a coincidence. Lining up, again, as we pointed out, with the anniversary of the Kelly Hopkinsville incident, as well as the Kelly Green Men Festival, which obviously yeah. takes place on the incident, the 62nd anniversary, which also has the eclipse passing over Hopkinsville with a totality over Hopkinsville, and the goblins who were in Hopkinsville inspired Sableye, who just a few <laughs> days earlier, and, a, and starting the night that this show is releasing, right. Sableye will be part of the Pokemon World Championships here in Anaheim, California, where we're going to be in just a few days. Anyway, it's all connected, <laughs> it's, or maybe it isn't. Maybe it's Apophenia. Yeah. Well, it's an astonishing, legendary harmonic convergence. It is. Uh, for us, anyway. Yeah. So. It's pretty fascinating. And another great place to see totality is in Carbondale, Illinois, which is just 140 miles northwest of Hopkinsville. It's going to be just a few seconds shorter there, but it's still going to be pretty amazing. By the way, if you're anywhere where you're in the path of totality and you can get some pictures, we would love to see those. But don't burn your camera chip no, out. No, 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 no. It, exactly. You need a filter. So even for your eyes or your iPhone... There is a sensor, and your CMOS sensor also cannot handle it. Uh, yeah. So to get a good photograph, go online. We'll have a, a link to an article that tells you the best way to, to photograph it. You can put – I remember when you and I were at the yeah. Grand Canyon with our friends for the last one, you can put the glasses in front of the lens, I believe. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. If it's good for your eyes, it should be good for the camera lens. But if you want a high-quality photo that you want to cherish the rest of your life and show to your kids, then – you might need something that has an adapter for this filter sheet that is more appropriate for a camera lens. And they yes. make those. So you can go online and, I, you know, good luck again, get one in time. But you need to move quickly. <laughs> but your photo um, American Paper them. Optics might have them too. Yeah, they do yeah. make one where it's just it's the sheet because basically that's the idea. So the filter portion of that, and they make them for telescopes as well. So you can look at it through a telescope. But the general rule for your eyes and for a camera, you need something. Yes, and here's one last thing we're going to say about the eclipse before we move on from this subject. It's really fascinating what wildlife does during an eclipse. And there's a bunch of articles have been coming out about this. Cows will return to the barn. Hens <laughs> will go back to the hen house. Oh. Birds start roosting in the trees, making a lot of noise. Bats come out. They think, uh, they I would think, be interested. They think it's night. Yeah, they think it's nighttime. Yeah. The other thing that happens is spiders begin destroying their webs. Oh, what? It just it, I'm not sure why. <laughs> We're done with but, these? Yeah. yeah, but here's the fascinating thing about this, too. There is an app that has come out called iNaturalist, if you want to get this app, you can download it and get an account. I read about this on the National Geographic's website. And then you do some practice before the eclipse making observations. And then what they're doing is they're crowdsourcing observations from all over the country. Oh, very cool. And, and probably the world, wherever yeah. people are exposed to the eclipse. And what you can do is you practice making observations, then you use the app to make them, and then they're going to coalesce all that data to really determine what happens in various parts of the eclipse to wildlife and what's going on around you. So if, right. that's, if that's something you're interested in, look for the iNaturalist app, and that's I, the letter I, and you can uh, check that out. So they're kind of data mining trends here. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and as they happen, because again, it's, it's happening as the sun and moon pass over the United States. Yes. So it could be a wave of destroyed spider webs is what you're saying. It could be. We can <laughs> right. finally put it all together. <laughs> oh, dear. But who knows? If you do manage to make it to the Kelly Hopkinsville area on August 21st of this year, the eclipse might be the least strange thing you see. I just personally have a question to ask of you, as I always try to do. And sometimes we're, we forget and <laughs> we skip it. But Scott, what do you think happened? Honestly, I think... You know what? I'm not sure. I do believe that they saw something. If this had just been a couple of grown men out at the farm 
They right, maybe right. buddies. They, they, yeah, they shot. They they came home with Bigfoot in a cooler. Yeah, and that happens I, quite. A I bit. would be a lot more skeptical, but you have this entire family. You have the women involved, who frankly I trust more, and yeah. you have <laughs> right. a lot of people involved. You have all the police going down there, even though that they couldn't find evidence. For me, that doesn't mean that they didn't see something and that right. they didn't take shots at something. And again, I come back to it. And I guess recently we had someone on iTunes saying, everything's multidimensional now. But like, I, <laughs> I do. That was probably directed towards me, I'm sure. Well, either way, it's me too. I do wonder, especially since the Skinwalker Ranch story, I do wonder if sometimes these encounters don't exist in the physical world, right. but that they're still real and that this family was experiencing something that wasn't actually there physically, but was there. And I don't know how to explain that. I, I just I get what you're saying. Man. Yeah. 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 So that's where I come down. I also think in the big picture, it's not unheard of to me because everybody wants everything to be pat. You know, we talk about a pat hand when yeah. you're playing cards. It's mm -hmm. the perfect hand. I got dealt a straight flush. I got dealt whatever. Or you're at the end of a game of rummy and it's like, oh, I can go down and I don't have to discard anything. That's your pat hand, right? And that's the thing that comes up a lot of times with these stories. And that takes me back to one of the sources in the Frontiers in Psychology paper that we were dissecting earlier. The source was titled Beliefs in Conspiracy Theories and the Need for Cognitive Closure. And in that case, what they're saying, what academia is saying in this case is that People who want to believe in this pseudoscience and, and these ideas, they need cognitive closure. Well, what I'm pointing out is that I think you could say the same things about all the skeptics. And their desire for cognitive closure, they have shoehorned in the owls. They uh -huh. have shoehorned in whatever works for them. And before them, it was people who said they were all drunk. And before them, it was people who said that monkeys jumped off a circus truck. <laughs> And that is all the same. That is belief in conspiracy theories and the need for cognitive closure. That's a paper written by P.J. Lehman and M. Cinerella in 2013, which also appeared in Frontiers in Psychology. But the point, and that's a free article, you can find it online. But the point is that I think you could say that need for cognitive closure is present on both sides of the spectrum. Absolutely. And I think in this case, you can say that the skeptics that we mentioned, they needed that cognitive closure and they found it with the owls. And we need it. And my personal conclusions are, as I said before, I do think they saw something. But the other thing that I also believe in is that, and maybe this is still seeking cognitive closure, I don't know if it is or isn't, is that the least believable part for me is the meteor and the UFO and the uh, ship. Yeah. And I don't know why I feel that way, because there were prior sightings of UFOs. And I wanted to mention this document from the Close Encounter at Kelly report that we've been referencing. This from the section by Isabel Davis. This is from J. Allen Hynek's Center for UFO Studies. And I'm going to refer here to these Project Blue Book documents. And Project Blue Book was a series of systematic studies of UFOs conducted by the United States Air Force. It's a show in itself. It's a huge thing. I'm not going down that road right now. Just gonna, <laughs> I just want to... Why not? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I just want to read you this document from a Project Blue Book report that is nested within the Kelly Hopkinsville report that we refer to so often. This is called Document C, and you can find this on page 102 of that report. It's 132 in our PDF. And in this document, which was a memo between two Air Force personnel... There's a reference made to a discussion regarding the Kelly Hopkinsville incident and how it relates to an earlier incident. And the Air Force's position is that they did not take the Kelly Hopkinsville incident very seriously. And they kind of slough it off, and there's a whole lot of misdirection about how 
significant they felt that particular report was. And from the wording in the report, it's kind of hard to tell if they're intentionally misdirecting people or just being mistaken about the details. There's a lot of fuzziness around the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter in these papers. But what there's not fuzziness about is a UFO report that predated the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. And this is the one that prevents me from saying flat out that the media report that Billy Ray made from the well that led up to all of this That part of it has always been a little sketchy for me, but listen to this report between these two Air Force personnel brought to light through Project Blue Book. And again, this is on page 102 of the report that we always refer to by Isabel Davis, this particular section is anyway. Prior to the above incident, several months earlier, I believe, we had another flying saucer, that's in quotes, report emanating from the Hopkinsville area. Emanating misspelled, by the way. This earlier incident took place on the farm just south of Hopkinsville of a Mr. White, I think his name was. All right, so now, instead of being north of Hopkinsville, we're south of Hopkinsville, not too far, honestly, from Kelly. Briefly, Mr. White and another witness employed by him had observed an unidentified object streak across the sky, perform several abrupt changes of course, and just for a second now, kids, you Mm. know my favorite phrase. I know you're all saying it (laughs) wherever you are in your trucks driving across the Australian outback. Yes, I enjoyed that conversation on Facebook the other day. Non-ballistic motion. Right. So this is an object that had non-ballistic motion. It's very hard to make a mistake about that kind of aircraft being of terrestrial origin. Yeah, I think about the difference between a helium balloon and how that might travel That's with the wind currents. It's just drift, or exactly. when you throw a rock, it doesn't make a 90-degree turn in midair. Yes, so this says, it performed several abrupt changes of course and finally disappeared in the direction of Bowling Green, Kentucky presumably to go buy a new Corvette. That is where they're built. I think so. (laughs) They observed this object for several minutes. I think there was another witness or two present that were guests of Mr. White at the time. Since Mr. White was a very prominent citizen of the area and the senior member of the largest local law firm, and since the description of the object and its maneuvers was very accurate, some credence was lent to the story. We therefore reported this incident in accordance with AFR 200-2 by confidential message. I mentioned the above preceding incident, of which I have personal knowledge since I personally investigated it, because it preceded, to the best of my knowledge, the Sutton incident. It was not long after the White incident that we heard of the Sutton incident. Perhaps the power of suggestion. So here's what this guy's saying. And let me go back and indicate who this is from. This particular document was between a letter to Lieutenant Kirk, sometimes referred to as Captain Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) I am not kidding. A letter to Captain Kirk dated 17 September 1957 from Captain Hertel, Campbell Air Force Base adjutant at the time of the Kelly incident. So I love this particular document. It's from Project Blue Book, which is a government project. It is a government document between two government officials where they are saying, well, this crazy thing happened, yeah. but the Sutton incident, I don't know about that one. Right. And they're suggesting that the Sutton family, yeah. who had no radio, no television, and didn't even read the newspaper, right. heard about this other incident and then fabricated their entire story based on this earlier one, which whether they did or didn't, what the heck was this thing yeah. <laughs> that this lawyer saw? <laughs> yeah. What was this? Yeah. And that's in the same area. Right. So... It begs a question, and it's loose on the timetable. So I guess, like I said, for me, still, with regard to the Sutton family and the witnesses and Billy Ray Taylor seeing the thing flying over with the rainbow exhaust, 
that for me was the hardest part, and I don't know why. It's, why don't I have a problem with metallic owls who <laughs> flip away and make weird sounds when they're yeah. in, are impervious to bullets? But yet the meteor with the rainbow exhaust bothers me. So let me get this straight, though. So you're saying that you have a hard time with Billy Ray's description of a craft landing out back in the gully. I, you know, I don't know. I don't or, know or if that I have he, a hard or time. Or that maybe I, the the goblin attack is a little bit more believable as not necessarily extraterrestrials, as we say. They may be unconnected events. So I guess it's the nature of Billy Ray being kind of a jokester and uh, people think, oh, he's a kidder. And then he's coming in and saying like, no, no, I, I did see something set down, not just streak across the sky, because obviously we've all seen meteors they don't stop and land, you know, and they don't em emit rainbow-colored exhaust or prismatic. I like to call it prismatic. I think uh, rainbow kind of demeans the whole description. Uh, yes. I'm making a clarification really because to me it sounds like people think like it's an arcing rainbow with sprinkles and, and stardust Well, that might be because I started that idea. But. Yeah, you did. But, well, it's, a, it's the more you know. Yeah. It is more easy to think about it, but what I'm thinking of is light, photons, broken up, rays, prismatic, which I guess I'm trying to add a scientific layer to something that's totally unscientific here. Yeah, or pseudoscientific. I'm still waiting for it. You know, Cogswell yeah. uh, did some research. I think he posted, or he was going to post in our Facebook group about the different colors that are burning. You know, they represent different metals and chemicals. Yeah, sure, different, yeah, sure right, right, different now, gases. He's like banging his head against a wall. <laughs> well, you're not one of his students. Don't try yeah. to talk about this stuff. You're not one of his... Uh, He's, he's not a grad Dr. Cogswell, our, our resident chemical engineer. Doc Cogs. Yeah. What I'm saying is that light with the description, that's a constant aspect of a lot of, maybe even most descriptions of unidentified flying objects. They're emitting light, they're pulsing light, they're shining light down. <laughs> it's just light is a big part of it. You know what I'm saying? It, there's black triangles, but underneath there's a pod of light at each of the three corners. They're sucking cows up with light. Yeah, well, that's also a, a large tube uh, sucking up the water out of a lake. Or cows. Or, or a water people, tower. Or the Australia, beam. I think it was a water tower. That's right. Yeah, yeah. With the, right. With the guy uh, on the motorcycles watching it with a bunch of other uh, people who had pulled over from the, the highway. Yeah. Getting back to your original point of why it's unbelievable, is it because of little aspects of it, like the rainbow exhaust, and maybe his character in that people considered him to be kind of a jokester, and his story did change a little bit when it first was told. It's a not, of you times. know, honestly, it doesn't make sense for me to latch onto it because, right. in addition to his story about that, there was also the police officer who was at the restaurant up the road who saw something the same night coming from the farmhouse. That's right, If I yeah. read that right in the report, it was hard for me to figure out if they were saying it was coming or going from it or whether it was a mistake. But definitely the guy saw something. And then we have this other report, which we just mentioned in Project Blue Book, about something exhibiting non-ballistic motion. Absolutely. From a prominent local citizen. So, so. not only a prominent, and, very and a sober, witness as well. Yeah, exactly, right. His handyman was there. Yeah. Also witnessed it as well as some other people, but we have at least now three reports from three different senior veteran police officers. You know, I've had conversations with people and say like, well, why do we believe police officers? Like, well, we just do, you know, over regular citizens. That's just human nature and, you know, a bit of a social class or just the fact that they're trained observers that uh, you expect more from a police officer. And also they've seen more strange things than you have. I will guarantee in the course of just natural phenomena and just and just strange things. Because when something strange happens, who do they call? They call the police officer first or the fireman. Well, them and the emergency room personnel, who I it's, have yeah. a friend yeah. of a friend is a, works in an emergency room, and her favorite thing that comes in is what they call an FO, 
Foreign uh, object. Foreign object, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, those, those, Wait, yeah. that's Scott's for... going to post pictures of that no, on the website No, I'm not, as well. I'm not. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, the emergency room's an exciting place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when something strange happens, usually it's a terrible accident or something weird, or like you get your toe caught in the drain in the bathtub. Yeah. What do you call? You call the firemen because they're the first responders and they have certain tools that can help with that kind of thing. But you report something strange, like a goblin attack, they send the police officers to go investigate it, which is what's happened here. But on these other two cases, ones which we have already told you about, which were documented in newspapers of the time, these police officers have no qualms about going on the record about what they saw. And and one was like several people with discs that were glowing, multiple numbers of discs that they saw over a lake. The other one... Yeah, uh, the lake is uh, Kentucky Lake. Right. So I think it's very significant, though, that you have officers of the law here who have no reason to create a hoax or risk their reputations by going on the record in a public newspaper and claiming it's like, yeah, I saw something similar. In fact, in the sky, it was even crazier than what Billy Ray described. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And I guess I don't have any other valid reason to say that the meteor part doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know no, why I latched on to yeah. it. But I, I, but I can understand. I think there's yeah. elements in there, though, that are not as solid. It's yeah. like when things come up to the house and they're peeking through the window and they're 10 feet away, it's a lot less vague than like, yeah, there was a light, some exhaust, something possibly setting down, and then there's not much physical evidence or trace evidence left. Well, yeah, and so I, I, see I, your, think, I do see your point. I think the other thing for me is that meteors and shooting stars, when you're out in the country, yeah, especially out in the country, rural country, and it's an area with not a lot of electricity or something like that. Right. You can see that stuff pretty much any night of the week. Down by my family's beach house in North Carolina, there's a place called The Point. This is near Fort Fisher, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. You can go down to Fort Fisher and park your car after dark, and if it's not cloudy, you don't have to wait more than about 20 minutes to see a shooting star. Anytime. As long as it's clear, they're there. So it's less of a thing for me, even though he said it was making this particular sound. But when we have these other more specific instances, like we have the lawyer, and I'm not put, I'm not saying the lawyer is a better witness than Billy Ray. Exactly. I'm just saying yeah. his story is more specific and detailed and makes more sense to me, I guess. Well, there's more action to it, yes. So the nature of the event, what's being described by Billy Ray, as opposed to what these other gentlemen have said that they've seen, it's different. You know what I'm saying? If you see, oh, there was two orbs, they separated into two separate things and they're strobing and different colors are passing through them and there's some kind of weird exhaust. That's not out of line with some UFO descriptions, but what Billy Ray saw or described as seeing is pretty simple. So to kind of wrap this up, what I would say is that that's not the most dramatic aspect of this whole story, but maybe it's more believable because it isn't. Anyway, that's where I'm at with that. Then that was a little more of a tangent than I anticipated. But how about you, Forrest? What are your thoughts on the big picture of this legend? As far as cognitive closure, touching both sides of the argument, absolutely. You know why? Because it's a human need. It is not solely the property of a skeptic's need or the believer's need. It is a human need to figure stuff out. Why does this weird stuff happen? What is this weird stuff? That's what people want to know. What is happening here? Is this real? How do I think about this? Well, there's no room for that. There's no way to process that. So depends on what file you want to put it under. If you're of the scientific, rational, skeptical, debunky mind, you say it's got to be owls. If you're open to fantastical stuff happening from the paranormal world, then you say like, well, I don't know, maybe it's goblins. I don't know. 
So I look at it in two ways. If you take it to be that there's got to be a terrestrial, normal, pedestrian, prosaic answer for this, owls ain't it. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what happened there that wasn't an alien or a goblin, but it ain't an owl. Right. In my view. Yeah. If you look at it on the other end of the spectrum, and I can't tell you what it is. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. If I was there, I could at least describe it and tell you what I uh, that what you're telling me I did see was not it, an owl. What I would say is that I'm starting to believe and form this picture kind of like John Keel's ultra-terrestrial idea in that it's maybe not something out of a metal spaceship that shoots out rainbows at its butt. <laughs> I hate to say it, and I know that one guy on iTunes reviews was very upset that I keep saying this, but it's something having to do, like what Scott was saying, is that it's not completely there. It's from another slip of a dimensional kind of thing which explains the weird interaction. You shoot it, it makes a noise, it does a backflip, it shows up on the roof. Yeah, and by the way, I don't think I got this in there, but that is an example of it possibly appearing as something that these guys who work at a carnival can recognize. That's it's exactly right. by I, their personal experience. That is something that somebody in the ARC said that was interesting is that about Someone the on ducks. Facebook too. Yeah, maybe, was, maybe Facebook, it was just think, Facebook yeah. where it's like a duck. You shoot it, it's in the background of the shooting gallery. Bing! it comes up again, the next one comes out, that's their world. Or in the carnival, you throw the baseball at the QP, <laughs> the weighted base, little stuffed guy who's really hard to knock over. But if you do, you get a stuffed animal. That's maybe their world. And not that they transferred that. And then who knows what's going on psychically with these guys. But that's the best they could make sense of, is that it's some weird goblin type of thing. So as I alluded to earlier, I don't know if they actually look like goblins, but that's what they saw, and I believe that that's the accurate description that they're giving us. So I tend to believe this family because, again, that's my populist bent, and that if that's what you honestly tell me and you were, you were frightened, we have a friend of a friend of a friend who said he had a goblin experience in the garden of some kind. Yeah. He doesn't appear to be a loon to me. I don't know the guy personally, but if he says that, it's like, I believe something weird did appear in his garden that he saw. I yeah. can't tell you what it is. I don't exactly think that there's something that came out of a spaceship that landed in back of the farm. It may be unrelated. It might be related, but not directly. Like they didn't ride the thing over, but like UFOs and Bigfoot's all happening and ghosts all kind of happening in, in the, in these hot spots, these overlays. Maybe it is something like that. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. We had a, we had somebody on Twitter talk about the MP showing up and this gentleman was an MP military policeman for eight years. He's a vet, toured Iraq. And he thought that that was very odd, especially the distance. It's a long ways away. Like from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, it's 30 miles and it's not their jurisdiction. So then of course, if you put on your uh, men in black hat here, maybe they were just posing as military police, but really Project Blue Book guys. Well, it's funny you should say that. Here is another excerpt from some of those Project Blue Book documents. As for the report that the affair was investigated and reported upon by two Air Force officers from Campbell Air Force Base, I don't believe that there is any fact in this. I believe that a couple of our officers may have gone down on their own to view the place, as I heard some talk of this at the time. But Colonel David McPherson, the base commander, certainly never ordered any official investigation, to the best of my knowledge. I seem to remember Captain Benjamin Bennett saying something about going down to see the spot, but since he is still stationed there, surely you have already questioned him regarding this matter. The only other officer who may have looked into this matter 
was the deputy base commander, Major Zeba B. Ogden, now stationed at Westover Air Force Base. I remember the two of us talking about the incident, and he possibly could have been sent to the scene by Colonel McPherson in an unofficial capacity without my knowing about it. That's about all I recall of the incident. At the time, Colonel McPherson figured that there wasn't anything to it, and we all followed suit, so to speak. There seemed to be nothing at all in the story that would in any way lend credence to it. So we all promptly forgot it. That letter is a certified true copy, signed, sincerely, First Lieutenant Charles N. Kirk. So here's the interesting thing about that. Zeba is a name that Bud Ledwith remembered. He definitely talked to that guy. Yeah, because it's an unusual first name. Yes, it is an unusual first name. And here's the other thing. The investigation seemed a lot more official and sanctioned than these guys are letting it on to be. So it does feel like a little bit of a cover-up. Well, I think it's more maybe than they want to admit. So what we're seeing here is what they're hinting at or what we can gather from their statement is that it wasn't just two duty officers or just MPs out for a stroll. Like, hey, that was kind of funny on the radio. Let's go check that out (laughs) over 30 miles away. Yeah. Off base on their own time. They may have shown up and saying, well, we're just we're just a couple of MPs and we heard this over the radio or whatever the store they they gave. But basically, again, it wasn't a full-blown Spielbergian event where there's guys in hazmat suits and they're running through the woods and there's flashlight beams going in every direction and Peter Coyote. It wasn't that large of a uh, investigation on their end where they really know what they're searching for, but it seems a little more official than what they're letting on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because again, quoting here, Mr. Ledwith is almost certain that the first Air Force officer he talked to on Monday, August 22nd, the day after, and offered his sketches to, bore the unusual name of Zeba. This indicates that Major Ogden did indeed go to Kelly to look into this matter. The following item indicates that he was not sent officially by Colonel McPherson. Right, so Isabel seems to think that maybe there wasn't unofficial inquiry, but there was an inquiry made. So it's not really clear what happened because the other thing that's associated with the Project Blue Book files is there's a drawing of the goblin that doesn't look anything like the official drawings that Ledwith did. Right. And then the other interesting thing is that there's a statement supposedly from Glennie Lankford that feels like it might be coerced or fake or one of the things that they surmised was that she was just trying to get it to end and saying whatever they needed, whatever she needed to say yeah, to get them to go away, which is what, it's funny, I have a friend who was an editor and (laughs) one of his favorite jokes, uh, commercials and Uh stuff like I used to do, and one of his favorite things to say was you get to a point sometimes when you're getting notes where you just are, you're sitting at that keyboard and all you're thinking in your mind is, what button do I need to push to get you to leave? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yes, I I know what you mean. I would, uh, hey, can you trim that like three frames or two or three frames? And I would just hit the space bar. Yeah. Like, see, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's much better. Couldn't have done it without your genius. (laughs) But in the case of Glennie, what's really interesting, though, is that here's a plain-spoken, honest, upstanding, no-nonsense woman And it's a version of the story that doesn't really match what she's told other people. Right. And so it's much more brief, but it's also kind of strange. Well, yeah, and the details don't match. And you can read it in the report. We've gone on enough about quoting this report. But let's just say there's some discrepancies in the paperwork between the Project Blue Book analysis and what is consistent with all of the things that they said the day after 
the encounter. So not to put you on the spot here or go too far off the cuff here, but what do you think that description then, the one that might be coerced, is well, here, I can, trying to do? You, do you know, you know what I'm saying? Let, like, let yeah. me read the statement. Okay. And you'll see how this doesn't jibe with everything that we learned from Ledwith's investigation anyway. My name is Glennie Lankford, age 50, and I live at Kelly Station, Hopkinsville, Route 6, Kentucky. On Sunday night, August 21st, 55, about 10.30 p.m., I was walking through the hallway, which is located in the middle of my house, and I looked out the back door south and saw a bright silver object about two and a half feet tall appearing round. I became excited and did not look to see if it had any eyes or move. I was about 15 or 20 feet from it. I fell backward and then was carried into the bedroom. My two sons, Elmer Sutton, age 25, and his wife, Vera, age 29, J.C. Sutton, age 21, and his wife, Aline, age 27, and their friends, Billy Taylor, age 21, and his wife, June, 18, were all in the house and saw this little man that looked like a monkey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> About 3.30 a.m., I was in my bedroom and looked out the north window and saw a small silver shining object about two and a half feet tall that had its hands on the screen looking in. I called for my sons, and they shot at it, and it left. I was about 60 feet from it at this time. I did not see it anymore. I have read the above statement, and it is true to the best of my knowledge and belief. Glennie Lankford. Now get off my lawn! Well, I mean, this yeah. is the thing. None of these details jibe with anything else that she reported. And, and, and supposedly this statement was taken the next day on August right, 22nd. Right. Sure. But being 60 feet away, she couldn't have been inside the house and been 60 feet away, for one thing. That is yeah, not accurate. that's weird. She never at any other time, including in all the interviews and any other time that she was ever spoken to, said anything about a monkey. And neither <laughs> did anyone else in the family, right. other than to refute the crazy monkey theory that yeah, came the escape up later. circus monkey. The escape circus out, monkey. Getting some exercise and maybe smoke a butt or two by the side of the road. Yeah, so the question question is, it does feel a little bit like a coerced statement to me. But some people might hear this and be like, oh, well, yeah, I guess it was a monkey. You know, the, the problem is that this is this one statement that doesn't jive with any of the other information we have that was reported on by multiple witnesses from multiple sources, whether it was newspaper, right. journalists, it was led with coming from the radio station, it's the police. Isabel Davis. Isabel Davis, everyone else. All of the details that they got do not connect with this statement that the military got in their unsanctioned visit to investigate this, which they weren't even supposedly sent to do. Yeah. It's just a little odd. But let me ask you this about it. What's the purpose then of skewing this if it is misdirection? Is it to say or to plant the idea in people's minds, maybe she did see a monkey or a bright, shiny monkey wearing some kind of a circus outfit that was just shiny looking through the windows? You know what I'm saying? It doesn't do a very good job of that. I, well, but, it does, but maybe it puts doubt in people's minds. Maybe that's the purpose. It's funny you should say that. Here's the other thing about that. The original handwritten document that yeah. she supposedly wrote up when she wrote that statement is missing. Sure. It could show whether the text and the signature are in her handwriting. The only thing they have in Project Blue Book is the typed copy of the original endorsed as a certified true copy, which apparently all you have to do for that is put the word certified true copy on it. <laughs> you need the right stamp. Yeah. yeah. I don't think they went down to the local FedEx and got the <laughs> notary to look at it. <laughs> so the point public, is, yeah. yeah, this is based on a supposed handwritten document, a handwritten signed statement that she made that does not exist, that can't be found, that right. is missing. Right. So to your question, yeah, it feels like disinformation. It's, it feels like disinformation. Yeah, and Or it feels like she was like, what button do I need to push to make you leave? You know, exactly. Just, well, it could be whatever. a combination of it that. It can be whatever you guys want it to be, go away. <laughs> right. Just Yeah, just yeah. write something. Yeah. I don't care anymore. 
no one's going to see this except it'll be on a podcast in 50 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. And anyone that watched Making a Murderer yeah. on Netflix can see how a confession can go haywire. Or oh, sure. if you ever watch Dateline, yeah. the person doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it. So yeah. conversely, we should apply that to everything that's been said of on course. both sides of this equation. Absolutely. There's obviously confirmation bias going on here on my own part yeah. because yeah. I believe that something weird happened. I don't know what. Right. And... I'm more likely to discount this paperwork than I am the other stuff that I feel like there is more of a bulk of, there's sure. a higher volume of. And to me, it makes more sense that that stuff is more believable, yeah. even though it's more far out. Sure. Now, I can go either way on this particular statement because, like I said, generally, if somebody's going to plant something, shade something, tweak it a little, there's a purpose for that. And the only thing I can see here in this weird description is that it's less outrageous than what happened. But what would the military care about goblins? You know what I'm saying? Why if, are they even there? Exactly. So They don't even know why they're there. Exactly. They're there to check out just what happened because based on the slight flap of UFO sightings over Kentucky during these uh, the last year and a half, or so. So they're there to check it out just to take a, a reading, like what's going on? Send some official guys down there. But this weird statement is kind of like, well, it doesn't really do anything other than, again, tone down the weird, <laughs> you know, goblins with the long arms raised, we come in peace, kind of all that kind of weird stuff. And throw the word monkey in there. It's like, oh, okay, crazy little doubt. The shiny eye part of it, I don't know. But it's a lot, it's just kind of watered down and just, it's not any less weird in some sense, but it is a lot less weird than uh, being attacked by two or three uh, invincible goblins. That's a good point. So then now we're getting to my big saying that I've mentioned before in other shows that I've been working on, but it goes hand in hand with Scott's pat hand idea. And what did you call it? Cognitive, cognitive need for The need closure. for cognitive closure. Exactly. So here's my phrase I've been working on. I'm not sure if this is a grammatically correct, but the desperate need to find a rational explanation for an impossible event will eventually make the rational explanation more ridiculous than the ridiculous explanation. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Basically, I don't know. It's a little... Well, I actually had a proofreader check it out. He said there was nothing wrong with the sentence, oh, but okay. with the logic of it, I know might be screwy. The point being is that the harder you try for an owl-like explanation at some point, it's going to get more ridiculous. Yeah, than saying goblins were there. That's my point about yes. that. Yeah. You, so you know what I'm saying. Is yeah, that there's an equal amount of proof, right. which is none. Well, exactly. Goblins, oh, actually, there's... Yeah. yeah, the proof we have is that they shot at something and that they were upset. Exactly. Beyond so, that, right. neither one of those two theories is any more viable there, than the other one. There are one. two ends of the spectrum because obviously, yes, goblins attacking you is crazy. We all know that from our own standpoints. But my point is that soul is being attacked by owls that are impervious to bullets. This was a fun topic, but also an interesting one, because I think at the heart of it, there's a lot more to it than just some crazy story. In many ways, it was just like every other fantastic story of the paranormal. It challenges you to think about that personal line you draw in your head between what you think is possible and what's impossible. And while you're doing that, consider this. You can spend a lifetime forming your rock-solid disbelief, but it only takes one undeniable paranormal experience to make you a believer. The 
that's going to wrap up our series on the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. We'll be back in two weeks with returning special guest, Mothman Prophecy screenwriter Richard Haddam to discuss the recent sightings in Chicago and other topics. Special thanks again to The Ark. Please remember to support our sponsors, get books in our bookstore, buy our ringtone, join our Facebook group, and come see us at Podcast Movement next week in Anaheim if you can make it. Enjoy the eclipse. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Sam Mines. Hi, I'm Kira Barsodi. Hi, I'm Jesse Hall. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice. My voice. However they see fit. Galaxy-wide. Galaxy-wide. Galaxy-wide in in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Mm